Khan is my name. Khan, nothing else. Khan. Bridge to Alt X. Make way for the Botany Bay here on Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I feel like this has been an episode years in the making that we're finally doing this. And what makes it so exciting is that you and I met because John Roca brought you onto the Cinephiles to discuss Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. And now, Scott, you and I are bringing John Roca back onto Enterprise <laughs> Incidents to discuss Space Seeds. John, welcome back to Enterprise Incidents. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm so excited uh, to talk about this episode. As much as I enjoyed talking about the uh, the Menagerie, this is uh, going to be even more exciting for me um, uh, because this is one that's – this is number one in my heart of all Star Trek episodes for so many reasons – and it feels full circle when you talk about the fact that we started on Khan and now we're back to talk about the episode that sparked the creation of the Wrath of Khan. Oh, okay. Now, for everybody listening to Enterprise Incidents, you have to know that I would not be doing Enterprise Incidents with Steve Morris if it wasn't for John Roca, who reached out to me to do the Cinephiles, their excellent movie podcast. And if you love movies, I've said this a million times and I have said this everywhere. You're not going to find a better podcast conversation anywhere on movies than the deep dive discussions that John Roca and Steve Morris do on The Cinephile. So make sure you check out their movie podcasts and definitely check out the episode we did on The Wrath of Khan, which I want to say was like maybe four or five years ago. And that was how I met Steve. And and I still, still after all these years, once in a while – I'll get someone who reaches out to me on social media or someone who stops me at the in the men's room and says <laughs> <laughs> perfect and says, place. Right, perfect place and says, <laughs> Are you Scott Mance? And I say, Yeah, it depends. And they'll go, I loved your conversation on Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan, on the Cinephiles. And that just means the world because that is the Citizen Kane of Star Trek movies <laughs> and Space Seed, while not exactly the Citizen Kane of Star Trek episodes, is an episode that no matter how many times I watch it, I love it, love it now. I have always loved this episode. I, I loved it even more after The Wrath of Khan. But my question for you, John, mm. is what is it about The Wrath of, uh, about the wrath of Khan, about <laughs> Space Seed? That you love so much. Well, as a, you know, <clears throat> I've said this before on other uh, shows in terms of representation. When I was a young kid, we didn't, I didn't get to see a lot of Latinos on screen, whether it be TV or film, you know, so the ones that you did get to see, you held on to pretty tight. And Anthony Quinn wasn't really open about how Latino he was. So <laughs> I didn't even know he was Latino until I was much older in my life. But it was, it was seeing as a young child. Wrath of Khan and seeing Ricardo Montalban. He is Latin <laughs> fire personified, an incredible shape, good looking guy. And he wasn't a Latino who kowtowed to the white lead. He mm. wasn't a Latino who was like, uh, who, who, um, who was seen as lesser than he, the way they presented him was, yes, he was of Indian origin, but we know it's Ricardo Montalban and he's playing a guy of superior intellect that he thinks superior strength, <laughs> superior ability, superior uh, uh, military ability. So for me, it was an eye opening experience to see that we could be represented in such a positive way and in 
such a strong way back in the 60s when this uh, episode came out. And it's only now in the 2020s that we're finally seeing more and more Latino actors and I'm uh, sorry, characters and actors and actresses be in these uh, high profile franchises on the heels of Zola Maraduena becoming Blue Beetle, Sasha Calle, Supergirl, uh, 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 Leslie Gra- Sophie Grace, I think, uh, Leslie Grace as, as Batgirl. All of this happening, it's all positive. And so when I go and remember Space Seed now, it's even more interesting to see how we're finally seeing the fruits of something like that back then. Um, plus, he's a badass. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a badass. And and I mean, on top of everything you said, John, uh, yeah. the fact that this was this episode was filmed in 1966, December right. 15th to December 22nd, 1966. It was a six day production schedule that Mark Daniels, its director, brought in on time for its <laughs> six day production schedule for Star Trek. This was the 24th episode to film mark daniels directing his sixth of 14 episodes making him tie with joe pevney for the director to direct the most episodes of the original series it aired on february 16th 1967 it was a 22nd episode to air Uh, the story was by carrie wilbur the teleplay by carrie wilbur and gene coon who was the producer of Star Trek at that time. The total cost of this episode was $197,262, which brought it over its budget by about $12,262. I mean, listen, this is absolutely a landmark episode, even before even before Wrath of Khan came out on June 4th, 1982, I always felt, even as a young kid, that Wrath of Khan was a great episode, that Ricardo Matoban was a great character. But Steve Morris, what are your early recollections of seeing Spacey for the first time? I always loved it. I always loved Khan. I, I, there were lines in this that just haunted me forever. Mm. It's such a smart well-written screenplay it's done just beautifully and i can remember when like fantasy island started and i was Mm. like that's con (laughs) like that's because i you know and and, and when ricardo montalban would pop up in various places it always was like here's this actor who i absolutely adore Mm. you know and even not having the experience of of john in terms of seeing you know seeing a latino actor and having that effect on me it's still i absolutely always love Ricardo Montalban. I think he is one of the criminally underused actors of all time. He is mm. so great. Okay. You, you know, Steve, you say that he's an underused actor, but when you look at his at his resume, his true. profile on, on the Internet Movie Database, that thing keeps going and going <laughs> and going. Uh, but, you know, the thing about Space Seed is this. I, I think it is absolutely a great episode, an amazing villain. The writing is so sharp, and and since we've been doing Enterprise Incidents and I've watched these episodes now with a completely different set of eyes, with a fresh new perspective, especially after the last 18 months that we've had in this world, there are certain things about it that do not hold up, specifically the character of Marla MacGyvers and just the general treatment of women in this episode. Mm. So I think that is one way in which this episode has not aged that well, but in other ways, it has aged well, especially with the dialogue. And as we go through this episode and we we do our scene-by-scene, play-by-play, you'll see, just as we are seeing, how much this dialogue really, really does hold up. And it just I just love that 
you know, Khan with his superior intellect says, I'm going to take over the Enterprise. And Kirk is saying, not with my ship, you don't, (laughs) you know, and the two of them together, you see, watching the Mm. Wrath of Khan, it took many, many years for me to realize, wait a minute, William Shatner and Ricardo Montalban are never on the set at the same time. The only face-to-face interaction that they have is after the surprise attack on the Enterprise by the Reliant when they're on the view screen. So they, they don't have this big right. battle face, you know, uh, hand-to-hand combat like they do at the end of Space Seed, even though we see that it is a couple of stuntmen for much of the time. <laughs> but uh, the, the two of them, Shatner and Montalban, have such amazing chemistry in this episode. And I do feel like while prepping for this, for this podcast episode here, it occurred to me that with Space Seed, we are now at the stage where the original Star Trek series was hit, about to hit its stride. Mm-hmm. Take a look at this episode and the episodes we have coming up next. We have A Taste of Armageddon, Errand of Mercy, This Side of Paradise, uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, and then you know, Operation Annihilate, you know, which is fine. But then we get into the sex, second season with the mock time and, and Mirror Mirror, Doomsday Machine, Metamorphosis. Like, like this is when Star Trek was at its best. And that is absolutely because of the producing and especially the writing of Gene Kuhn, who did such a big polish on this screenplay that he was given a teleplay by credit along with Carrie Wilbur. Carrie Wilbur did his first story outline on August 29th, 1966, which I have said elsewhere on Enterprise Incidents, August 29th, 1966, is the day the Beatles played their last concert in San Francisco at <laughs> Candlestick Park. But on that date, when Carrie Wilbur sent in his story outline, it was called Botany Bay. So then he did a revised story outline a couple of days later on September 1st, in which he changed it to Space Seed. He did a second draft teleplay in early December of 1966, and then Gene Kuhn came in and did such a big rewrite on December 7th, and then he did a polish, his revised final draft teleplay, which was dated uh, December 12th, and then a, a second rewrite, which was dated December 13th. And when, you're, when, you're, when you take into account uh, Space Seed dealing with uh, space travelers in suspended animation, Carrie Wilbur, the writer or the first writer, uh, he wrote seven episodes of Lost in Space, which deals with a family in suspended mm-hmm. animation, Lost in Space. In this case, the Botany Bay was found two centuries later by the Starship Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Carrie Wilbur also did TV for Captain Video and his Video Rangers, the Californians, Temple Houston, co-starring Jeffrey Hunter, the Virginian, the lesson of Jesse James. Hmm. Uh, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they were filming this episode? Would love to hear it. <laughs> well, the biggest one is on December 15th, the day they started filming, Walt Disney died of lung cancer. Whoa. Oh. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's a and big one. I, and I just can't imagine being in Hollywood on that day. Hmm. That just must have been so shocking. And we've all experienced it where 
we had to go to work when someone that was just near and dear or super important passed away, you know, and it's, it, it shakes you up. Um, on December 16th, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights was adopted by the United Nations. It took effect nine years later in 1976. And here's some of the things that it said. This is, this is the United Nations saying this is what every human on the planet Earth, this is what their rights are. They should have the right to self-determination. There should be no discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, language, religion, political opinion, or national origin. They should work under just and favorable conditions, including an adequate standard of living. And every human on earth should have some kind of social security, some kind of health insurance, and have access to education. And we can see since 1976, when this was finally instituted, that all of those things have come true. So thanks to the United Nations for making all that happen. (laughs) On December 17th, the first pancreatic transplant happened. On the same day, a satellite was launched containing, it's called the biosatellite, and contained 10 million specimens of insects and plants. And they sent it into space to see the effect of space and zero gravity on all of these life forms. And it cost $100 million. And three days later, it was lost. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. On So, you know, this, this going up into space thing is not actually all that easy. <laughs> no, it's uh, not. <laughs> on December 18th, How the Grinch Stole Christmas premiered for the first time with animation by Chuck Jones. And of course it is a annual favorite. We watch it every year. John, you're going to like this one. I had mm. never heard of this before, but it's an NFL game. Oh, and the Dallas uh, kicker, whose name was Pete Gogolak. Do you know yeah. this story? No, good. Don't please tell it, please. Um, he attempted a field goal with yes. his right foot. Cause he's yes. right footed. It was blocked. And while the ball was still in the air with his left foot, he kicked it. <laughs> again and it went through the uprights yes yes so you had heard of this yeah 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 but i didn't know which story we were going to tell about him but that's incredible right and and they had like a 20 minute conversation between the rest because they're like well do we count this there's no, you know, there's nothing in the rule book about this and finally they disallowed the score oh yeah which i think is a bummer i think like you should give give, give them the three points Come well, on. They rarely approve anything that's out of the realm of uh, of what's in the rule book until later on. Then they can make a deal about it for sure. And one more thing <laughs> that probably shook up the whole entertainment industry on December 21st, the FCC voted to allow ITT to buy ABC. Oh, wow. yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's a merger. A big yeah. merger. Big, big part of the big corporate takeover of the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That was always happening. Then never more though, more so than now. But wow, Walt Disney dying the day that this episode started to uh, get filmed. That's a that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the episode, so shall we get into Space Seed? Let's, yeah, let's dive in. Let's plant that seed and see what crop has sprung from the seed we planted today. Coming up on it fast, sir. Well, and we start on the bridge with them moving in on a ship that they completely don't expect to see in this area because there's no earth ships that have been in this sector for years. I'm picking up a signal, sir. Captain, that's the old Morse code call signal. And then a thing happens, which happens kind of multiple times in this episode, which is Kirk says to Spock, I thought you said it couldn't possibly be an earth vessel. I understand why it always gives you pleasure to see me proven wrong. An emotional earth weakness of mine. There is no greater moment to show you this is a marriage. There's no greater 100%. moment than that Complete, moment. Completely right? agree. And you know what? <laughs> Even though 
Star Trek has changed day-to-day producers from Gene Roddenberry to Gene Kuhn, even though the yeah. tone of the show was so very different because of the levity and the humor and the camaraderie that we really see being brought to the fore between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Yeah. But that kind of dialogue was right there at the very beginning mm-hmm. with the Corbomite maneuver. Uh, remember when they're on the oh. bridge and Spock makes that comment uh, – uh, has has it ever occurred to you that there's a certain inefficiency in constantly asking me about things that you already made up your mind about? <laughs> and Kirk's response is, it gives me emotional security. And here he is saying an emotional earth weakness of mine. And then right at that moment, by the way, Kirk is kind of giving Uhura a hard yeah. time. You know, She's excited about uh, getting Morse code signals. And he's like, we're reading it, Lieutenant. <laughs> and then it reverses basically because Kirk s- tries to spot what kind of ship it is. He says, oh, it's similar to the DY-500. Much older. DY-100 class to be exact. So we have Kirk kind of mocking Spock for making a mistake. And now we have Kirk making a mistake. I agree with you, John. Totally a marriage. Well, this ship that they're seeing, you know, we don't know the name of it yet, but uh, it is the Botany Bay. Mm -hmm. And the optical effects of this episode were provided by the Westheimer Company. But the actual shots of the Enterprise encountering the Botany Bay were provided by Film Effects of Hollywood. And I know that most people today, when they're watching Star Trek on like a whether it's Netflix or Amazon or or Paramount Plus or whatever, you know, they're watching mostly the episode with the redone, the remastered visual effects. But if you go back and watch the episode with the original effects, the shots of the Enterprise and the Botany Bay alongside each other are actually really, really cool for 1966 mm. and 2021. And the Botany Bay, no surprise, was designed by Matt Jeffries, who designed the Enterprise inside and out, but the, the 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 tricky thing here, the interesting thing here, is that Matt Jeffries actually designed the Botany Bay before he designed the Enterprise. Oh, oh wow! Isn't that interesting? And he described wow. it as quote an antique space freighter, which it is. Wow, that's how did he design it before? Was it for another show, or was it an early prototype? Or uh, he was just going through different uh, designs. For, mm. for Star Trek, and, and this was never intended to be a design for the Enterprise, mm. but he was just kind of fooling around and coming up with different things, and he, you know, there it is, the Botany Bay. The last such vessel was built centuries ago, back in the 1990s. It always makes me sad how wrong they got where we were going to end up <laughs> and how far away – this is now 30 years after the Botany Bay was supposedly <laughs> built, and we're nowhere close to this kind of technology. But at the same time – when you have a moment, like in a couple episodes we did prior to this on Tomorrow is Yesterday, that episode was filmed in 1966, and it takes place in 1969 when the Enterprise goes back into Earth's past, and mm. it's, a, it's right before the launch of basically Apollo 11, and the writer of that episode, Dorothy Fontana, actually got the day of the week correct even though that actual launch was still a few years off. So so we can't wow. be too hard on Star Trek here. True. That's a good point. <laughs> um, and the other thing we find out is we get readings that there are some kind of life form. can't be human because it's only like four heartbeats per minute, but something's going on on that vessel, and the Enterprise is moving close to this mysterious ship, and that is the end of our teaser. Wow. 
Wow. It's such a, such a great teaser, by the way, seeing the Enterprise and the Botany Bay together. By the way, if the Botany Bay looks familiar to, to everyone watching this episode, they did use that visual. They reused that visual effect of the Botany Bay as a cargo ship that the M5 computer destroyed in the second season episode, oh. The Ultimate Computer. Wow. Okay. Continuing to pick up some form of heart action over there. Very faint, very slow. Seems to be coming from about 60 or 70 bodies, as near as I can make up. Alien bodies, Bill? Could be. There's no sign of breathing or any other form of respiration. What is your take, John, of the of just the the interplay here between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? Don't you feel like like they're that those three actors, yeah. Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly? Don't you feel like they just they just have it down? They are in mm-hmm. such a great rhythm, and their chemistry is just fantastic. Yeah, like any show. I mean, it's rare. It's the rare show, I think, from our classics going back and watching those shows. It's a rare show that like, got it right the first few episodes, right? It takes a while, like anything else, to find that rhythm, to find that. Uh, and, and for the writers to understand how to write for these actors and these characters and how to make it work within these scenes and showcase them so well. And you're right. They're humming along here so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a deleted scene of Chekhov way at the, on the second floor <laughs> looking through the window. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's saying, Botany Bay. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, but, you beat yeah. me to it, Jack. <laughs> well, and, but, and, yeah. But, uh, ahead, but I think it's great the way they're, they're interacting and stuff. And, and everyone has their design role. They're really... And it's important, right? Because when this starts to go awry, look, Khan is the closest, almost I think the closest of anybody in the uh, three seasons uh, of getting control of that ship. I mean, Kirk is seconds away from dying in this episode um, when he is saved uh, and he could have absolutely taken over the ship. And that's that. We don't have movies. We don't have any more seasons. That's that. Uh, but uh, it's it's, so you have to have uh, everybody's role clearly defined so that when the uh, proverbial uh, uh, crap hits the fan. Uh, they're able to do what they need to do in certain moments and understand their duties as things are falling apart. Agree. And what we get into right now is that there's no record of the Botany Bay. And the reason is, is because there's not a lot of records at all from the 90s because that was when we had our last so-called world war. Do you guys remember that world war in the 90s? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Terrible. It was terrible it times. was awful. It was awful. But yeah. he, here's the thing about uh, when when uh, Spock says it was uh, uh, your your last so-called world war, and then <laughs> McCoy says the eugenics wars. This is really interesting that that the, the this last world war was a eugenics war because this is mm-hmm. not the first time in Star Trek where eugenics have been brought to the attention, and mm-hmm. this is clearly an allegory for Nazi Germany eugenics. Mm-hmm. You know, producing a better kind of human being, yeah. and if you remember back in Conscience of the King, when Spock and McCoy are trying to reason with Kirk and tell him, you know, this guy, uh, you know, Kodos uh, killed four thousand people. Spock makes a comment. He says, apparently, he had his own theory of eugenics, and McCoy says, unfortunately, he wasn't the first. Yeah. So, of course, he was referencing. Uh, you know, Hitler, but he was also referencing Khan. Of course, your attempt to improve the race through selective breeding. Oh, now, wait a minute. Not our attempt, Mr. Spock. A group of ambitious scientists. I'm sure you know the type. Devoted to logic, 
And you could see Spock there. It's just taking the bait. And Kirk says, no, Arthur, I would be pleased. All right, as you were. And then he t- says to McCoy, and this is, you know, uh, Scott, to the point you've been many, many times, the lightness of these relationships and mm. the fun of them is what's really coming out. And just little beats like that that we just have. And then Kirk asking if McCoy wants to join him on the landing party. Well, if you're actually giving me a choice. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. not. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this banner, this is all Gene Kuhn. He was given a credit on the teleplay for this along with Carrie Wilbur because he did such an extensive rewrite of this episode and and it shows because uh, because of the, a moment like this where where you see the the chemistry and the banter and the lightheartedness uh, that that the three of them have together the comfort level I guess mm. is a, is what I'm looking for here. Oh, I'll need somebody familiar with the late 20th century Earth. Here's a chance for that historian to do something for a change. What's her name? Uh, McGivers. <laughs> Why does the Enterprise have an historian? <laughs> That's never been mentioned the entire series up until this point. Yeah. The impression that we get when we see Marley MacGyver's for the first time, hmm. like we can already see she doesn't look very happy. Yeah. Right. And and she's, you know, she's about to, you know, start painting. And probably for the first time in this five-year mission, she actually gets called to the transporter room. Mm. And instead of being like, oh, goody, I got something to do, she's annoyed. Yeah. So there's something already about her character. And Madeline Rue, who played Lieutenant Marla MacGyver's, uh, we've seen her uh, many times on TV Mm. shows like Have Mm -hmm. Gun, Will Travel, Bonanza. She was in The Untouchables, Rawhide. The Lieutenant, produced by yeah. Gene Roddenberry. And she actually worked with Ricardo Montalban, as yep. it turns out, three times. Yeah, Really? On she, Fantasy Island. Yep. And then um, what was the other show where they were actually husband and wife, I think, on the show, too? Well, uh, there was Bonanza. Bonanza, right. Bonanza, and then Star Trek and the Fantasy Island. And the episode of Fantasy Island that she did – Came out in 1982, mm. the same year. <laughs> it's wow. the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, <laughs> that is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, what what you say, Scott? It's just so evident. It's such good filmmaking that she is. She's really the first person, I think, to really not be happy to be on the Enterprise, except maybe Joey in uh, Naked Time. Mm. But that part of that's he's under the influence of whatever the disease is. I mean, she. You're right. She looks. Like, I really just wanted to sit here and do my painting. I really didn't want to go out. Yeah, she yeah. like couldn't be bothered. And the other thing, too, about MacGyver's is that this was not supposed to be the first time that we actually are seeing MacGyver's for the mm. first time. This is not the introduction that we originally had. There was a scene that was filmed but cut for time mm. in which we are introduced to MacGyver's for the first time. And the scene takes place outside of MacGyver's quarters when she interacts with another crew member whose name is Baker, hmm. but she's actually played in the episode by Barbara Baldivin, who played Angela Martine in hmm. Balance of Terror, but they just gave hmm. her another name. So in the scene, she's telling MacGyver's that another crew member wants to ask her out, and hmm. she's not interested because she doesn't want to go out with a man who doesn't have the courage to ask her himself. So this crucial scene, mm. which was filmed but cut for time, actually does establish MacGyver's as someone who was looking for like a man who was a strong man. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Both uh, literally and figuratively, and one of the reasons why that she uh, uh, is so attracted to Khan, and also uh, MacGyver's in the original earlier versions of the outlines and the earlier teleplays, she was a second communications officer, and uh, it was Jean Kuhn who changed who changed her uh, profession to ship's historian. I do want to say a couple of things. One, um, I understand the need for that scene, but I also think we get it from non-verbally from her, I think so too. her walking into her quarters. We see the painting is this strong soldier, Roman soldier like we see the busts of these famous men. And of course, Khan will reference it later when he's in her quarters. Uh, so from the beginning, we see her as a woman very much of her own mind. Uh, and you're right, Steve and Scott, like the irritation she has um, with being called to the transporter room. Who knows where she's coming from? You know, where where was she at? What was she doing? Coming in, she's putting on her smock. She's going to do the painting. So also she's representative of an artistic spirit on a scientific militaristic type mm. of ship. So the difference in mentality there is uh, also um, evident to see. Because normally, if you're on that ship and you're, you know, part of the, you're like, okay, yep, I gotta go, you know, boom, I gotta follow orders. But she's very, she's irritated, and I like that. That's because she is working on something more important than what they're doing here in her mind. She's conceiving, yeah. and I also don't think that she's embraced that Kirk or Spock or McCoy or anybody on that ship is a great man like the men she is studying and painting and figuring it out. So there's an irritation rather than an excitement to be around another great man. And it isn't until Khan shows up that she really gets um, fully connected to that as and senses that this is actually a great man for worse, obviously, but still exudes that kind of charm. And of course, we should be fair. We're three dudes discussing what a woman's sensibility is, but we're only getting <laughs> we're only interpreting it from what we're getting on the screen from uh, the show. So, yeah, the, the, those are great points. And, and, and I never occurred to me. Kirk is a great man. You know, like it's pretty well established. Well, now, but in the first season, are we 100 percent sure? I think we're still discovering how great of a man he is for sure. I, I don't know. Building. I don't think Marla has been paying attention if she's yeah. been on the ship for a while. Maybe. Kirk saved the day a whole bunch. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, it looks like that ship is expecting us. We read heat coming on, complete oxygen atmosphere. Very interesting. But uh, MacGyver's is late. Yes. You oh, know? yeah. That's yeah. a good point. That's Another a, rebellious way, moment. Yeah. When she walks in, <laughs> you know, what does yeah. Kirk say? Uh, Lieutenant uh, McGivers? And she goes, <laughs> McGivers. Like, <laughs> like, she is not like any female crew member we have seen so far yeah. on, on the original series up to this point in production order. And, and as, as we're getting ready to beam over to the Botany Bay, it's, it's interesting to point out how with the exception of the scenes – or the scene, rather, that is filmed yeah. on the Botany Bay, which was filmed on stage 10. This is basically a bottle show because yeah. most of the episode takes place on the Enterprise on stage nine, which is uh, one of the reasons why uh, the episode I, – I wouldn't say that it came in on schedule and on under budget, uh, but it certainly wasn't as expensive as some of the other episodes mm. that uh, that we've we've seen up to this point. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to point out is we do get a classic McCoy transporter sort of joke. You ready, Bo? No. Signed aboard this ship to practice medicine, not to have my atoms scattered back and forth across space by this gadget. You're an old-fashioned boy, McCoy. And then we're on, on the Botany Bay, and the first thing we see is a woman in like a glass box looking sort of blue. A beautiful blonde woman, yeah. 
Yeah, in a sexy outfit, because you always yes. got to put on a sexy outfit before you go into suspended animation. <laughs> you got to be as free as possible, Steve. You know that. <laughs> I think that's a really – well, if you're a woman. Well, I don't <laughs> if, know. If, yeah. I if you're a man, dudes. a red jumpsuit will do. I mean, this <laughs> that's is true. fine. Well, um, well, the other and, thing that I noticed, the other thing hmm. I noticed, and I, and I, I got to tell you guys, like in all these years – that I've been watching this episode, and this mm. is definitely an episode that I that I watch a lot. It wasn't until this rewatch to prep to talk mm. with you fine gentlemen about this episode that I realized that after they beam over to the Botany Bay, what does Kirk do? What do you, what action subtle do you see him do? He puts his hand mm. by his phaser. Like he is, I never noticed that. I never noticed that. Just and when I was case. watching it again, I like kind of backed it up a little bit. I was watching on Netflix and I just kind of backed it up a little. And I was like, oh, he's like standing like he's ready for something. Yeah. And I just thought it was pretty interesting how this is a ship from Earth's 20th century. And he's he's on he's already on guard. But I mean, look, that's what he's supposed to be doing. But it's right. something I never noticed before. Captain, it's a sleeper ship. Suspended animation? Uh-huh. I've seen no photographs of this. Necessary because of the time involved in space travel until about the year 2018. And I remember back in 2018 when they stopped doing these suspended animation trips. Yeah. It's just made everything a lot easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just always, it's always amusing when when the future is now the past, you know? Well, it's let just, me ask you guys, mm-hmm. like, why send these these people into space. Like why, okay, in, in the late 20th century, yeah. when you have an advanced spaceship like the Botany Bay, and and it's probably without, well, actually not probably, without question, it's the most advanced spaceship that exists on Earth in the 20th century. And mm. if it is capable of interplanetary travel with suspended animation, why send these, these 72, you know, people who are are napoleons mm. into space like wouldn't you want to send the very best like the smartest like scientists and astronauts and that was actually a very big plot point that they had problems with mm. in the development of the screenplay like why send these people like criminals wait hold on i got a question yeah. i got a different question were they sent or was this their idea okay See that's that's the answer right there. Mm-hmm. In the earlier versions, uh, when when Carrie Wilbur's version of the teleplay had them being sent into space, like why why waste such a, a ship on them? Um, and then it was Gene Kuhn who came in and said, "Let's make it like these are like Napoleons, and they are escaping." Yeah, mm-hmm. they used the Botany Bay to escape from the Earth and. And this is another another development that Gene Kuhn brought to the table, but but also Gene Roddenberry had done a final rewrite on this screenplay, mm. and mm. you know Gene Roddenberry, uh, when he turned in his rewrite, he went to the Writers Guild because he wanted to have his name on the screenplay over Wilbur. And hmm. the Writers Guild turned down his request, which is why Roddenberry is not on the screenplay, but Gene mm. Kuhn and Carrie Wilbur are. I just thought it was interesting how uh, Roddenberry went in for one final rewrite and then wanted to, wanted his name <laughs> on the screenplay. Well, And now something starts to happen, which is that one of the suspended animation uh, units starts 
they've triggered something and this guy's heartbeat starts speeding up and Kirk asks, could he be the leader to Marla MacGyver's? And she does not answer because she is just staring at this person that looks like the leader. The leader? Lieutenant? Yes, sir. The leader was often set to revive first. This would allow him to decide whether the conditions warranted revival of the others. And I love something, John, that we've been talking about through this whole series is that I never noticed until doing this with Scott is Kirk is an incredible observer. Mm Mm-hmm is that Shatner, the way he performs it and the way they edit it, he notices everything. Absolutely. Look, I hate to break it to people who don't know, but William Shatner is a goddamn good actor. Yes, and he so is. And so people have, you know, made fun of him over the years. By the way, people have never going to accomplish anything that Shat come close to accomplishing anything Shatner ever did. They make fun of his speech patterns. They make fun of his stuff, and they say he's over, overacting or whatever. But Shatner is so good at the stillness, so good at the looks, so good, as you said, Steve, at the observing. So I'm not surprised that both of you may have made a point throughout the series to point that out because it's true. It's one of the essential things that we subconsciously as viewers give, like just notice and really are wowed by, but we don't necessarily talk about out loud because – which just seems so cool. He does it and it's so it's so right there, yet it seems so natural that we don't question it. And I also think this is why Shatner by the end was frustrated about being on the show because he did know he was a damn good actor and and wanted to have more. I think he felt he could have been a movie star and it never really happened for him that way, but he became an icon and a legacy and that matters um, even so much so recently jumping into cage with sharks for God's sakes recently <laughs> on, uh, on one of those uh, one of those uh, specials. So he's a man of very strong belief in himself and very willing to take chances and coming into this show. I think without him, there's no way this show would have survived. And so you know, these observational moments you talk about, Steve and Scott, as you as you I'm sure you've mentioned before in other episodes. They're so essential to the overall greatness of the show. He's he's rarely um, unsettled. And that's a good thing. You're you're absolutely right, John. And look, we 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 know, especially you know, Steve and I, we we absolutely know how much you feel about about Kirk and about yeah. Shatner. You feel yeah. the same exact way that we do, and we completely one hundred and ten percent agree <laughs> with you, if that's possible, yeah. about Shatner. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> you can only have a hundred percent of something. Okay, fine. Then we'll give it a hundred percent that Shatner. <laughs> absolutely, he is a. Uh, a, a damn fine actor, and yeah. yeah, sure, he he did lay it on thick and and bring on the overacting, especially in the third season. But but the fact is, when you watch the first two seasons of Star Trek, William Shatner was right on point. Yeah, he yeah. was pitch perfect, and some of these episodes just represent some of the finest acting that Shatner ever did. And this is one of them. And the thing he's noticing right now is that Lieutenant MacGyvers is fascinated mm. by this situation and this person. On the northern India area, I'd guess. Probably a Sikh. They're the most fantastic warriors. I think the choice to make Khan a Sikh 
is kind of fascinating because, mm. I mean, even today, I don't think most Americans know very much about what a Sikh is. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely in the mid 60s, they didn't, you know, and and also because he's Latino, it's, it's just all really interesting to me, that choice. Yeah, but also isn't Sikh, isn't that uh, Indian? Isn't that part of the Indian culture? It's like a religion. A yeah, it's, religion. It's a religion Indian. that's largely in India. Yeah. And remember, late 60s is when we're getting George Harrison playing the mm. sitar. We're getting ah, Indian yeah. influence, yoga. All of that is in here. So it's the right time in the current state of the society that is exploring Indian points of views, gurus, what have you, um, to open the door to having an Indian character in this. And of course, they cast a Mexican actor. But, you know, I think a person of color did a fantastic job with this role and Made him iconic. A man from the 20th century coming alive. Maybe. Heartbeat dropping. The life support device is starting to short out, and it becomes a race against time now because uh, if they don't get him out of there, he's going to die. What happens if we get him out of there? McCoy's reaction, he'll die in seconds if we don't. And then, you know, <laughs> they all look around at each other. And this is when Kirk jumps into action and he breaks the glass. And this is something yeah. else that I didn't notice until I was watching the episode to prep for you guys here on Enterprise Incidents. When Shatner accidentally knocks off his phaser from his belt as mm. he's breaking the glass. And yeah. the reason I noticed it because you could see DeForest Kelly looking at the floor where the phaser dropped, looking <laughs> back at Shatner, wondering if this is going to blow the take. But <laughs> – in a like in a split second, DeForest Kelly realizes that well, if I blow this because Shatner's phaser fell off his belt, yeah. after Shatner already broke the glass and they have to fix that, it's going to take a whole lot of time and it's mm -hmm. going to delay the shoot. So DeForest Kelly didn't say anything and he just went with it. Uh, he erred on the side of caution and he just went with the rest of the scene. And it is a very dramatic scene when Kurt breaks the glass and opens the door and Khan, <laughs> Khan comes out and he's coming to and he just whispers to Kirk. How long have you been sleeping? Two centuries, we estimate. This is the part of the episode when we are introduced to Khan, played mm -hmm. by, of course, Ricardo Montalban. Yes. Uh, his first appearance uh, in a feature, uncredited, was in 1942's The Three Musketeers. <laughs> uh, other films that he did, movies like Neptune's Daughter, The Queen of Babylon, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, mm -hmm. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, of course, The Wrath of Khan, but also the Naked Gun, <laughs> Spy Kids 2, Spy Kids 3 on TV. He was on shows like Playhouse 90, Dr. Kildare, The Virginian, of course, Fantasy Island, and even, even the Colbys. And he mm. is an Emmy winner. Ricardo Montalban is an Emmy winner for Outstanding Supporting Actor for How the West Was, was mm. Won. And wow. he was given a SAG Lifetime Achievement Award in 1994. Very, very decorated actor as he should be. Attempts to revive other sleepers await our success or failure with the casualty already beamed over. Dr. McCoy is frankly amazed at his physical and recuperative power. I cannot tell you how many 
exclamations of the awesomeness of Ricardo Montalban I have in my notes. <laughs> Just his physical presence, his his look, the charisma, the intelligence, the intensity. Like he is off the charts amazing, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even lying here unconscious, I think he's charismatic. <laughs> That's how good I think this guy is. <laughs> um, and we find out a little bit more information. We find that 12 units have failed, 72 are left, 30 of those are women. 72, alive. Group of people dating back to the 1990s. Discovery of some importance must have sparked. There are a great many unanswered questions about those years. You know, it's funny to connect this up to what has been the main theme or what has been one of the main themes in the MCU, this idea of super soldiers. These are super mm, soldiers. Totally. Right? These are physical specimens and, and people of incredible intelligence and able to fight and all defeat uh, entire um, civilizations possibly if given the uh, chance or ability to do so. So at the, I found this so interesting as we – kind of spent the last 12 years or so or 13 years or so kind of confronting this idea of uh, super soldiers, even in the most recent Black Widow, having a Russian super soldier in David Harbour. And we're not done with it because what if, as we're recording this, starts tomorrow and the first episode is Peggy Carter as a super soldier. So it's like it's so interesting uh, that we still have this and it's such a big part of this episode. It's a great point. And I think we're Mm -hmm. all kind of fascinated with this idea of being – Certainly, as a kid, I was of being a little yeah. more than human, a little more strong. A little, mm-hmm. it's just all interesting. And mm-hmm. what, one of the interesting <laughs> things to me about the way stories work and movies work and TV works is that Kirk and Spock—they don't know for sure that these guys are, are, are right. Are they don't know who they're yeah, right. exactly. The products of eugenics. They don't know that, but we, the audience, all know they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, why would we be talking about this? Yeah, right. You know, right. and so we're ahead of them going, no, no, these guys are. And we even get, again, that I, I didn't quite agree with Scott that Star Trek hadn't hit its stride in the early episodes because I love so many of those early episodes. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it hits a certain rhythm here that is really, really key. Right. And, and we had bantering with McCoy, and now we have bantering with Kirk and Spock. Yep, yeah. yep. Because Spock shoots down Kirk's theory about them being prisoners, which I love. Yeah. So much for my theory. I'm still waiting to hear yours. Spock doesn't have one because he doesn't have enough facts. And Kirk says, and that irritates you, Mr. Spock. Irritation. Yeah. I'm not capable of that emotion. (laughs) Which, of course, he is. Yes. (laughs) And two things, Steve, that I want to hit on with what you just said here. One, yeah, you and Scott may disagree where it hit its stride, but you saying this episode stood out. This may be why it stood out for – I can't remember the producer's name who took it and went and made con off of it because he went in and rewatched all the episodes or watched them for the first time. And this is what he used as the motivation for the Wrath of Khan. Oh, so oh. there must be something special about this episode that stood out to him in the interactions, in the, in the back and forth. And the second thing I want to point out is this irritation moment is so similar to what happens in Khan when he's like, You proceed from a false assumption. I'm a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. It's so similar to the irritation thing where Kirk once again assumes that Spock has a human approach in terms of his emotion about him taking over the ship or his theory being correct or not correct or not even having a theory. Um, yet Spock is always erring on the side of logic. Well, almost you, always. You know, yeah. listen, I, listen, Steve, I, I love those early episodes as much as you do. But, you know, there is you can see that they're still finding their way. Uh, with those early episodes, which is what makes it, which makes them so great, because for for a show that was totally 
groundbreaking and trailblazing and 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 they were you know paving their own way uh, it's it's remarkable how how much they were right on point how they got it you know from the yeah. beginning you know like all the other star trek shows it took a couple of seasons for them to find their rhythm even next generation and deep space 9 but the original series just bolted out of the gate and they got it but it was really it was gene coon who kind of came in and kind of molded it into something better, especially with regards to the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, yeah. and McCoy. And, mm-hmm. and in a scene like this, you know, where they're they're analyzing the situation, but they're also adding levity to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that the dialogue that they're having, this is where we are hearing that it is going to get a little bleak for the human race mm-hmm. before it gets better. And Space Seed was the first episode to be shot in production order where you actually do hear, you know, you're, you know, up to this point, you're seeing that that the 23rd century, things are looking pretty good. We're out there, mm-hmm. we're exploring strange new worlds. But in Space Seed, we're hearing that we're going to have to earn that. We're going to have to really work hard to get there. And it is going to get worse before it gets better. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we've been seeing that that times have been very, very tough, especially in these last couple of years. And the bleakness that we've heard about that took place in the 1990s in Star Trek, I think we're kind of seeing some bleakness now, but mm. hopefully we will be aspired and inspired to finally get past all this so we can get to the point where reaching out. One couldn't agree more. And uh, I know we, we're kind of been on this point a long time, but there's one other thought that it just occurred to me about the difference between the Gene Kuhn years and the first, you know, set of episodes is that in from shore leave on, I think the enterprise seems like a really fun place to be. Absolutely. <laughs> and before that, it wasn't a fun place. It was a serious place. You know, there was some fun things that happened. But this is like, oh, I really want to be on this ship, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with these people. And right now we are in sick bay, and now is when we get the first real information that this guy is the product of selective breeding. His heart valve action is twice the power of yours or mine. Lung efficiency, 50% better. An improved breed of human. That's what the eugenics war was all about. I'd estimate he could lift us both with one arm. And as McCoy is explaining how amazing this person is, in walks Lieutenant MacGyver's, and we hear... be interesting to see if his brain matches his body. It's a great observation for someone who was still asleep. <laughs> when MacGyver's comes back in, as soon as she walks in the room, you know, like you said, Steve, he's just lying there and he's exuding this charisma. And she walks in the room and she definitely feels it because she's just like stops in her tracks and she's weak in the knees just at yeah. the sight of him. And yeah. Kirk takes advantage of the moment to uh, take her aside and reprimand her. Lieutenant, at any one time, the safety of this entire vessel might depend on the performance of a single crewman aboard. And the fact that you find a man strangely compelling to you personally. She kind of gives it back to him a little bit, doesn't she? Not personally, Captain, professionally. That shows something about her character that she goes, wait a minute, hang on. Well, I think it's a really interesting scene. And when it started, I w- kind of made a note of like, well, how do I feel about this? Because first of all, Kirk is right. It isn't just professional. It is personal. She's and, and then she says, I mean, the sheer delight of examining his mind. And men were more adventuresome than bolder, more colorful. Now, Kirk has clearly read her perfectly. Now, I don't agree with you, but OK, go ahead. Yes. Well. What we might say about how this character was written in the mid-60s, but she is attracted to him as a man we, right from the beginning, don't you think? No. 
I think she's fascinated by him first. And I think she's more caught up in that. Now, I don't think she's aware that she's attracted to him personally just yet. I think she's she pursu- might not be. Yeah, yeah I think point. she's pursuing that. But I also think you're giving Kirk a little too much credit because Kirk, A, is slept with half the galaxy. So this idea <laughs> of worrying about, you know, whether one person can mess up, it's a little bit of uh, of a convenient logic for Kirk to use in this moment. And don't be um, don't remove a little bit of the ego or jealousy of Kirk that she's oh. fascinated mm. by Khan, but not fascinated by Kirk in the same way. I mean, there's there's the ego of men thing. I mean, he he does berate her a little bit even in front of McCoy, which I think is poor form. If you're a captain, you do not berate a a, a um, what do you call it? A, a, subordinate. A, a, a subordinate. Right. In front of another right. person, you take him Price into a separate public. quarters. Right. Doesn't, I mean, he take, doesn't he take her to a different space? Yeah, and that that McCoy is sitting there. He's sitting oh. at his desk watching the whole oh, thing happen right, because right. they have they have the interaction after yeah, she I leaves. Totally agree. Yeah, That's so cool. so I, I do think Kirk might have some concern here, but I also think just like you can't remove her possibly burgeoning personal connection to Khan, you can't remove his uh, emotions or personal connections to this issue as well. You know, he's used to being. The top dog having her be kind of like really taken by this guy is something that might unsettle. I'm not saying he's still not doing the right thing. I'm just saying there might be more going on here. Um, That's I think that's a great point. The thing that I like is when she does admit that she's particularly fast. Yeah. uh, Fascinating by Menace. He says he's his response is good. If I can have honesty, it's easier to overlook mistakes. That's all. I think that's great leadership. I am always concerned. And it's what I tell my students is when people try to cover up their mistakes, mm-hmm. that's usually bad for the production. Right. When people admit their mistakes and everybody can deal with it and it's much better. And the most important person, in my opinion, who needs to admit mistakes is the leader themselves. Agreed. Um, and then after she leaves, McCoy says, The pity you wasted your life on command, Jim. You'd have made a fair psychologist. Fair. <laughs> see and that's the ego that's what i'm talking about yeah says, yeah you're right of, you're right yeah i i did i agree with you uh, uh john i i think yeah. that there is a little bit of ego going on with regards to how how taken mcivers is with khan mm. i don't want to say over him but there's just something there there she's is never looked at kirk that way she's never looked at kirk that way yeah, so, right, yeah. <laughs> you know khan wakes up but the way he wakes up look yeah. at the way he wakes up Tell, describe it. He does this unusual stretch without saying a word. You are establishing and showing mm-hmm. that Khan has some genetically engineered superiority, some kind of special strength to his body that he mm-hmm. is summoning in an almost alien type of way that separates him from the rest of the humans on the Enterprise. That's a really unusual stretch, and he's summoning the physical strength in his body. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Montalban's skin isn't quite that dark, is it? It seems like that's darker. Maybe it's just noticing it from the high-def transfer, but it feels mm. like they darkened his skin. Um, Maybe, but his features are so, uh, you know, very clearly Mexican, Latino, whatever, mm, that yeah. it just... This doesn't look out of the realm of him looking Latino. Yeah, no, I agree. But I agree. yeah, he is supposed to be Indian. So I, I, I take your point, though, for sure. Yeah. Um, and he notices that there's these antique medical instruments up on the wall. He grabs a big scalpel and McCoy comes into the room and can't sleep. Hmm. Where is he? And- 
and he checks his eye. And of course, we know, again, we're ahead. We know what's about to happen. And he grabs McCoy by the neck, puts the knife to his throat, and McCoy's response... Well, either choke me or cut my throat. Make up your mind. Can I tell you, this is my favorite scene with McCoy ever in well, all I, the um It is a shows. great, great scene. Great scene with yeah. McCoy. DeForest Kelly yep. is fantastic in it. He is not showing any fear whatsoever. Yep. And he's actually assisting Khan. Like, you know, if you're going to do it, do it right. And he's telling him, like, the best way to kill him. It would be most effective if you would cut the carotid artery. Just under the left ear. That was something, no matter how intellectually advanced Khan is, mm. the, the bravery of this otherwise mortal human really impressed him. And he says, I'm like a brave man. <laughs> I think it seems amazing. And the yeah. other thing I think is, is in addition to the incredible bravery and self-control McCoy shows, which he doesn't get the opportunity to show that much in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also is within his own philosophy because he, you know, him saying at the end, I was simply trying to avoid an argument. Yeah. I think McCoy is a nonviolent person. Do you know what I mean? Yes. This is his way to diffuse the conflict without it degenerating into violence. Well, I, I also think something that uh, McCoy said earlier, right? He's a physical specimen. I wonder if his brain matches the advancements in his physical body. And this is the downfall of Khan always. Oh, yeah. Khan oh, yeah. resorts to violence, resorts to anger, even with – he resorts to his physical abilities first before he resorts to his in- intellectual abilities. And this is always the downfall of Khan, which is why he's kind of low-key a tragic figure in that way. Uh, because when McCoy comes in, he must know or sense that he can dismember McCoy in a heartbeat. But he takes the knife off the wall and threatens McCoy. And McCoy is very brave in this moment. And it's almost like as a doctor, he is analyzing Khan in the exchange by saying to him, where are you going to cut? Here's where you can cut, blah, blah, blah. He's almost analyzing this. Is his brain as advanced as his physical abilities and making up his own mind? And I also think this is a great example of the fact that both Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the reason they work so well is all three of them are alphas in their respective mm. fields, right? Completely agree. K- uh, Kirk is an alpha as a captain. Spock is an alpha as a science officer. And McCoy is an alpha as a doctor. All three of them have no problem expressing their opinions at any one time about a situation. And so when they're separate in these scenes that we see throughout Star Trek, they're very in control of the scenes that they're in. And so I think that's a, a, one of these other examples of that when you see McCoy getting a chance to go toe-to-toe with a guy who can pull, literally snap his head off, his body. Well, I, I, I think fantastic. you bring up a really good point about Khan being a, a tragic figure in that way. And yeah. it, was, it was Spock in two different times who pointed out the flaws in Khan's character mm. by first in this episode mm. saying that superior ability breeds superior ambition. Yes. And then in The Wrath of Khan, saying uh, that Khan's patterns indicate two-dimensional thinking. thinking. Yes. <laughs> so these are flaws that like Khan can't yeah. get out of his own way to realize nope. his shortcomings because he's so genetically superior that it uh, enhanced his a- ambition in such a, an aggressive way. And uh, that is his downfall for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys. The two of you just gave me 
a major epiphany. John, okay. I, I, the idea that they're all alphas, I never thought of it in oh, that way. Yeah. And yeah. how this relates to Khan's limitations. So here's the thing that it, you made me realize is it's not just that they're each alphas in their own right. Mm. It's that they respect the other alphas in the yes. other realms. Yes. And so Kirk is willing to learn from Spock and McCoy. Yes. McCoy is willing to learn. And even Spock and McCoy are willing to learn from each other mm -hmm. as much as they have conflicts with each other. Mm -hmm. Khan doesn't have anybody like that. Right. Khan believes that he is right all mm -hmm. the time. 100%. He doesn't have anybody to challenge his preconceived notions. And that is why he makes so many mistakes. Well, I would disagree slightly, Steve, only that this, he doesn't want somebody to challenge. Yes. Exactly. Remember in right. Khan, when his own son challenges him, he's, he yells at him and, you know, and then eventually apologizes later on, um, you know, and then he dies and says, I'll avenge you. But he doesn't like to be questioned. Wait a minute. Is, is Joaquin his son? Yeah. I never thought that was his son. I never oh, thought I, it was his oh, son. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I thought it was his son. Oh, I don't know. No, it could I, be. I've I, always I, thought, I, I mean, from the, the first time I watched the movie, I've always thought it was his son. You know, maybe really? it is because, I mean, there, there's definitely an age difference between Judson Scott, who played yeah. Joaquin in The Wrath of Khan. That's who we're talking about. Um, yes. But there is a character in this episode named Joaquin. Yeah. And I just oh, thought that they right. just recast him with a much, much younger actor for The Wrath of Khan. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to all that in the that's conversation. Just, yeah, that's, all, that's all interesting. I, mean, I, always, we, I just always thought that. So, yeah, okay. Fair we enough. end the scene. Khan has found out that it is, in fact, two centuries later. And yes. he says, What is your captain? I have many questions. <laughs> I, I and I like the way he composes himself on the bed. Yeah. He straightens himself out and he's like basically shutting down until – the captain shows up. Mm -hmm. Coy walks over to the intercom, calls the bridge. I have a patient here with many questions, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a well-written episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Khan's hubris, Steve, that he's like, where's your captain? I have many questions. Not, <laughs> can I speak to him? I it, have many questions. It's so funny you say that because this, this is the thing that I noticed so strongly this time. And this is the first example of it is mm. it's not just that Khan – acts like a strong person. It's not just that he acts like a leader or a general or even a president. Right. Khan acts like a king. Yes. Mm. Yes, yes, absolutely. He, he expects people to, to bow down to him essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and, and again, that is another of his tragic downfalls. Right. James Kirk, commanding the Starship Enterprise. I see. And expects Khan to introduce himself. And your name. <laughs> and he says, I have a few questions first. That is a red flag. That's yeah. a big, big, big red flag. And he starts asking Captain Kirk, like, uh, where is your, your uh, heading? And Kirk's like, well, all right, I'll tell you. Not that it's going to make any bit difference to you. <laughs> and of course it doesn't. And um, my people, 72 of your life support canisters are still functioning. Khan just lays back and says says, tells Captain Kirk you will revive them. Not asks him, not says can you please revive them. He says you will revive them. As soon as we reach Starbase 12. I see. They just met and they are already butting heads. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Kirk asks again, and your name and the other red flag following up on an already very big red flag he just says, Khan is my name. Khan, nothing else. Khan. So immediately we are establishing that Khan 
definitely sees himself as a superior figure. And he is also very guarded. He is holding his cards close to his chest, which his very, very muscular chest, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the name Khan was not even close to being the original name for this character. Mm. Uh, in the earliest outlines, his name was Harold Erickson, and he was described as a Nordic Superman. Then, oh. then the character's name was changed to John Erickson, which was just a cover until we got to his name, which was actually Ragnar Thornwald. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, all right. A good thing that uh, Gene Roddenberry rewrote Gene Kuhn's teleplay, and it was Gene Roddenberry's decision to change the name from Erickson to Khan. So while Gene Kuhn fleshed out the character, it was Gene Roddenberry's final rewrite in which Erickson became Khan. And actually, uh, in the James Blish Star Trek books, did you guys have these books? <gasps> okay, so they no, like one or two of them. I think okay, I have, yeah. so so they came out in the late sixties uh, mm, throughout okay. the throughout the seventies, and they were basically. Numbered books, Star Trek 1, 2, 5, 7, all the way up to 12, mm -hmm. in which James Blish adapted the episodes for the books. Mm -hmm. Now, I never really liked the way he wrote the episodes because he kind of condensed the episodes very, very much. Uh, instead of like fleshing it out because you're writing it, he actually made them really, really short condensed versions, but they did have great – covers the books had great artwork on the covers mm -hmm. so the irony is that when uh james blish adapted space seed for one of those books the name because he was working from an earlier draft was actually sabahi khan nunian so the name khan was there and the the number here's the full irony of this so there were 12 star trek books that james blish wrote the adaptation that Space Seed appears in, are you ready? Star Trek II. <laughs> of course. Of course it is. Um, and Kirk wants to get some more information and continues to ask questions. And Khan says, I find myself growing fatigued, doctor. <laughs> and McCoy says, you know, that maybe it would be good to continue the questions later. And as Kirk starts to leave, Khan asks if he could get some reading during his convalescence. What you know, he wants to learn about the what's happened in the last two hundred years, and Kirk very nicely says, "Sure." And he pulls over the monitor and says, <laughs> "Doctor McCoy will show you how to use this thing." Let's examine this moment. First of all, big mistake number one yeah. on Kirk's yes. part. Oh my god! All okay. over this scene. Yeah, and, and you would you know, Steve, you would think that after. Captain Kirk let Lazarus run around the Enterprise <laughs> without any guard whatsoever. Uh, in in the previous adventure in the alternative factor, you would think that Captain Kirk would learn from his mistakes, post a guard with Khan, and maybe not let this guy who was clearly agitated and guarded have access to top secret information on this yeah. 23rd century starship. It was yeah. a, a, you know, Kirk says in the next scene, you know, it's common courtesy, you know, you got to – Got to get him up to speed with the new times. He meant well, yeah. but 
he should have like maybe trusted his instincts a little more. But just going back to what John, what you were saying about Shatner, about how great mm-hmm. he is as an actor. Khan says, "Thank you, Captain. You're very cooperative. <laughs> cooperative, not yeah. not thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it." He goes, right. "Thank you, Captain. You're very cooperative." <laughs> and Kirk gives McCoy a look, mm-hmm. like, "Did he just say cooperative?" <laughs> and it is just a slow turn of the head. Yeah. Shatner turning to DeForest Kelly, going like. Okay. This like, mother effer here. This mother effer. <laughs> so much to what you're seeing without any dialogue in that moment right there. So I'm glad you mentioned it. It's in my notes too. And this is the thing I was thinking about. Again, we're talking about Kirk the Observer. And I went, well, what does Kirk know about Khan at this point? Right. Number one, he knows he's withholding information. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think Kirk knows that Khan is not fatigued. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, um, Kirk, I think he knows that Khan is already planning something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he knows that Khan is not just used to command, but he is used to obedience. Yes. He is used to not just command and obedience, but he is used to ruling. Yes. He offered the world order. Yeah. I think Kirk has figured all that out, which is also why handing him the the technical specs of the Enterprise is a really weird choice. You know, the other thing I was thinking is, you know who the last person who was reading in sickbay was? Is Gary Mitchell. Gary Mitchell. And boy, was he reading mighty fast. (laughs) We're back up on the bridge. And Kirk is disappointed. He's disappointed. Mm. He says, This con is not what I expected of a 20th century man. So let's analyze this for a moment because Mm. this is not the first time that Captain Kirk has met That's the 20th true. century man. Oh, He just met Captain Christopher when the Enterprise went back in time to 1969. And he met this oh. Air Force captain when he beamed nice. him aboard the Enterprise. And he is seeing in this Captain Christopher so many of the qualities that he has himself. And he is seeing that Captain Christopher is really smart, and he is a noble person. He cares so much about his family. He cares about his duty. Even though it may threaten the future, he's going to report on the Enterprise. Captain Kirk admires Captain Christopher a very, very, very great deal. And so now here we are. We have Captain Kirk meeting another 20th century man from about 30 years after Captain Christopher, maybe 25 years. And Khan is nothing like Christopher, and they are both from the Mm. same time period, more or less, Mm -hmm. and they could not be any more different. And after this promising depiction of a 20th century man in Christopher, Kirk is disappointed that in just a a couple more decades, we are seeing another 20th century man and is someone so stubborn, (laughs) for starters, (laughs) as Khan. That is a totally interesting point that I never, ever thought of. I know he's making considerable use of our technical library. I think Spock gives Kirk a bit of a subtle reprimand. <laughs> um, and we have more of a discussion of what happened during these wars. And one of the things that happened was a group of these young supermen seized power in almost 40 nations. They were hardly supermen. They were aggressive, arrogant. They began to battle among themselves. And this is Spock's line that you brought up earlier. Because the scientists overlooked one fact, 
Superior ability breeds superior ambition. And we hear that he's collected a bunch of some of the names of these people and that there were 80 or 90 unaccounted for. Oh, and there were 84 on this ship. So <laughs> that fact isn't in the history texts. Spock brings up a great point. Would you reveal to war weary populations that some 80 or 90 Napoleons might still exist? That it is why it is not in the history text. <laughs> MacGyver's goes to sickbay. And Khan, first of all, knows who she is and that she was she participated in his rebirth. I've been reading up on starships, but they have one luxury not mentioned in the manuals. I don't understand. A beautiful woman. So now she's actually having interaction with him. And mm-hmm. and I gotta say. The, the the chemistry between them is absolutely palpable. Uh, she is she is weak in the knees with him, mm. and the confidence and the charm and the charisma uh, that he is displaying, the Khan is displaying. Uh, Johnny, is it fair to say that it's off the hook? Yeah, off the hook, off the chain, as the kids like to say. Yeah. My name is Khan. Please sit and entertain me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot going on with him. And yeah. she's trying to keep it on business. She's asking about historical information, about the ship mm-hmm. and the purpose, and he's having none of it. He just interrupts and says, And why do you wear your hair in such an uncomplimentary fashion? It's comfortable. But it's not attractive. So not only is Khan a Superman, but he is also a hairstylist. <laughs> Who knew? Well, and, it, and it's funny, too, because I think obviously this isn't um, the reality of Star Trek in 1966, but it is far less common for people to comment on women's appearances <laughs> yeah. today yeah. when you don't know them. Mm-hmm. And we could say that, you know, the the Federation is in the is post me, too, you know, that. If, if our world is the world, which, of course, it can't be because we didn't have eugenics wars, but that nobody talks to Marla MacGyver's in this particular way, mm. like Khan is doing in this moment. I don't know. I haven't I don't I haven't memorized all the episodes in all three seasons, so I don't know for sure if any of the, the Federation uh, well, doesn't do that. But maybe, yeah, maybe. And, and I think my theory doesn't hold up at all, frankly. <laughs> I, think it's, I, think it's, I think we could probably find lots of evidence. No, I, I, but I appreciate that that's what Roddenberry wanted to do. Do you know what I'm saying, show? But then, but then we see the way uh, Kirk treats Uhura in this episode later on. It's not positive. So, I mean, there's, there's some – there's, and I think there are women who have spoken out and other people who, of course, have spoken out about the way this whole relationship goes about with MacGyver's and Khan. And I, I think the criticism is, is fair um but right he's um, he but it's but his character is his character and it is consistent with men or women yeah. um and his idea to control men is different than how his tactics that he uses to control women uh or the woman he might find attractive um so although you may have an issue with it i think it's consistent with his character well, overall it, yeah and I mean, frankly, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's a bad guy. Right. You know, exactly. like I don't exactly. need him to behave perfectly. Right. Well, and the, here's the other thing I was thinking about this is he's this is his plan at this moment. He is looking for weaknesses, I believe. And he, it's not that he might not be attracted mm-hmm. to her. He probably is. But frankly, this is a Kirk move, too. Yeah. You know, Kirk will seduce a woman in order to and it does it multiple times in the series in order to expose a weakness within the bad guys yeah or the antagonists 
Um, and Khan starts to undo her hair and they mm-hmm. end up in front of the mirror, which is actually really, really well staged shot. And she is uncomfortable, but she does not stop him. Mm-hmm. And then she says, finally, Mr. Khan, I'm here on business. You find no pleasure here. My interest is scientific. Men of that is the world of the past. I'm sure you understand. I actually talk to a man of your century. And he's got his hands on her. Yeah. Then she starts to go and he grabs her arm. Yeah. And there's an extreme close-up of him with that intensity that only Montalban can bring. Glad you came. Just do it again. The treatment of women in this episode hmm. is not only chauvinistic, but it is it is really degrading. That's something of without question, it does not hold up, it does not age well. We're establishing that MacGyver's she's clearly missing some of the noble qualities that it takes to be a Starfleet officer. The fact mm-hmm. that she doesn't seem like she wants to be there. She shows up late to the to the transporter room. She's mm-hmm. immediately distracted when she's, you know, over on the Botany Bay. She's not displaying qualities that are aspirational. And then, you know, the way that she just gives into Khan and sacrifices everything, her life and her mm-hmm. career for somebody that she kind of just met. It's so debatable why she mm-hmm. would do that. You know, she, right. did she just see that, well, anything is better than, than the life I have going here on Starfleet and the Enterprise? Does it show her to be a weak character that she gives in or does she – is it because that she just – she sees Khan as a kindred spirit? I mean – like this is a conversation that could go on for quite some time. Yeah, I I also think we, I I don't see her as weak, and I and I've never felt this way. But I, I know as I've gotten older and and a bit more wiser, dare I say, I and listen to two women's points of views on these things a little more um, closely. Something like this, you look at it and you go, okay, what is the analysis here, right? Because she makes her own decisions, and I don't see that as weak and. She has. She's a character that is presented from the beginning with an, an obsession or, or slash attraction to men of a certain time and certain that exuded a certain power that led people. This is why I go back to my point earlier. I think she sees Kirk as the captain of a starship, but she sees Khan as the leader of men mm. and of nations, mm. and that there's the difference, right? Kirk may be great as the captain of the of the Enterprise. Khan could possibly be great on a planet. Running a planet. Right. And so she's on his way to doing that. Exactly. So she sees something more in it, whether it's right or wrong. That's, I feel like that's her point of view. So when she decides to go with him, again, as I said with Khan and his his mistreatment of her, which we would say, it is consistent with the character they've presented. It is consistent with MacGyver's that she would go with him, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. she has an obsession, attraction with him. So maybe she's always wanted to go with a great man and be with a great man, in her opinion, a great man like this with this kind of power. And that is her decision to do so. And there are many women who have married men of great status or power for their own purposes or their own reasons. And their agency in doing so should not be removed simply because other people might have an issue with how she's making this decision. So I, I just feel like questioning her decision, um, I, I don't know what that leads to. You're, you're, I, I get right. why people do it, but I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, you know. I agree with you completely. And and just watching the episode you know, with, with much uh, sharper eyes, and, mm. and especially during the course of this conversation with, with the both of you, you know, we're, we're seeing like every scene 
that we've had with MacGyver so far is is painting her out to be a person who is she's not where she belongs. Right. You know, and is it a flaw in her character? Maybe not, because she 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 ends up where she belongs. Unfortunately, uh, it's with the guy who tries to take over the Enterprise. Yeah. And, you know, Kirk is not going to let that happen. <laughs> so um, I have, as you would imagine, a lot of thoughts on this. Mm. I, I, I hope I think we're going to come back to yeah, it yeah, because yeah. we have more. Certainly, but but here's what I'll say just briefly. W- one is that my thoughts are on sort of two separate tracks. The The one track is that. This was written by guy men in the 60s, and yeah. there's a certain kind of weird power fantasy thing that I think they're playing with a little bit. Oh, certainly. Yeah. You know, but but putting that aside, I really agree with you, John, is mm. I, I think she's a character. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a bunch of supporting characters that have had really rich emotional journeys that didn't necessarily start off in the best place, like mm-hmm. Styles in Balance of Terror, like um, Riley in Corbomite, like people who had to evolve right. in the course of the show. And I also think it is really, really clear. It's not mm-hmm. just that she's looking for a leader or a great man. It's that she has a really specific fantasy, almost a fetish. Yeah. Like she is into a certain thing and she doesn't know really anything about Khan. And a lot of times people are attracted to the image that they have Mm -hmm. of who they think someone is. Mm -hmm. And Khan seems to be the perfect fulfillment of something. I think she's been fantasizing about, for a long time. Absolutely. Like, I completely, again, I completely agree. I mean, on one hand, I see MacGyver's, you know, the, the, the way that, you know, she's treated and especially like when Uhura gets slapped in the, the, the briefing room later by Joaquin, uh, like, oh my God, that women are really treated very poorly in this episode. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with everything you just said, both of you, mm-hmm. because she's in Starfleet. She's not happy. She's, it's not a good fit for her. Yeah. And Khan is... Khan's ambition, Khan represents, uh, especially towards the end of the episode when when Khan's fate is sealed, she sees a better life with him. Mm-hmm. We're at this fancy dinner scene. Um, and by, by the way, I think they're using the same weird space celery as they had in Man Trap. That <laughs> it's just weird. I, lo- I love when they're trying to make future food. McCoy is asking, why are we doing this? Lieutenant MacGyver's idea to welcome Khan to our century. And then we have some dialogue that I actually think is unnecessary, which is Kirk asking McCoy how attracted MacGyver's mm-hmm. is to Khan. See, why is he can... asking this? Why is he yeah. asking this? Right? Yeah. Right, John? Yes. It's not about the, the safety of the ship, you know, because Holby just gave this the, all this information That's to Khan. A good point. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, she's just interested in him and possibly in a, in a physical way or, or, or sorry, a uh, an emotional way, whatever, but like homie's handing him over specifics to the ship and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So I think that's a way more egregious violation than anything she's doing. <laughs> it's so, a really good point. Yeah. I mean, is, yep. MacGyver's helps him take over the ship, but the person who really helped Khan yeah. is Kirk. And, and but, this but is, also like, like John, like, like what yeah. you said, I mean, we have two flawed leaders in this episode. We have Khan mm-hmm. And I think we actually like Kirk in this episode is flawed. I mean, he he makes a couple of bad decisions, but not just with the uh, handing over the, the technical manual so Khan could read. But you know, yeah. at, it turns out the end of the episode was definitely a bad idea. But <laughs> like you have Khan who has a big ego, and I think in this episode we're seeing that there's a bit of an ego on the bit of Kirk's part. Oh yeah, and and that ego is uh, clouding maybe his judgment too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, and I also think just in terms of dialogue, it's not that great. And you could have handled it in a more subtle way. Like the right. ways that we've seen Kirk as an observer is stronger. And if McCoy just said, if Kirk says, where's Khan? And and, and McCoy sa- and McCoy says, oh, Khan is going to bring MacGyvers. They're coming together. And mm-hmm. Kirk had a look. We would know everything. We would know that he's thinking about that relationship. And that would have been stronger than this direct questioning. Yeah. Um, we're in MacGyver's rooms and Khan shows up in this great yellow jacket that again shows a lot of chest (laughs) and and he looks around and sees all this art, all of these great men, Khan also a good observer and also observes. And you've rearranged your hair for me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. By the way, the for me is key to that line. Yeah. That's a good point. And by the way, interesting that you pointed out Steve, that Khan went through another costume change because Ricardo Montalban in this episode changed his his wardrobe five times. Wow. I mean, Ricardo Montalban holds the record for going through the most costume changes for a guest star, a male guest star in an original series Star Trek episode five times. So there's some trivia there you for you. That's some good trivia. And as he's looking at this art. All bold men from the past. Richard, Leif Erikson, Napoleon, a hobby of yours, such men. And then at that moment, he sees an unfinished drawing. And of course, it is him. Okay, the look that Khan gives MacGyver's after he sees the painting, the reaction that MacGyver's has is like, I can't tell if she's, I mean, she's startled. Is she embarrassed? Is she humiliated because she her her affection for him is exposed i think all the emotions you were talking about scott i think they're all there Mm -hmm. and i think humans can have multiple conflicting emotions simultaneously Mm -hmm. and i think part of her drawing him was she wanted him to see it probably because she wanted to expose Mm -hmm. her affection for him her attraction to him right but she was also afraid, also yeah. embarrassed, also knows she's acting foolishly, also knows it's not responsible for her as an officer on the Enterprise. And all of those feelings happen when he unveils that drawing. Well, it's symbolic, isn't it? It's unveiling her feelings. So he's like, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right, Steve. Absolutely. Good point. Um, and it, but yeah. regardless, that is the moment when Khan says to himself, I got her. Yeah. But he also warns her, and I think this is important, right? This a lot of people. I know people complain about this episode or the stream, but he warns her. He says, "I am honored that I caution you. Such men dare take what they want." He's putting it on the table, whether it's right or wrong. He's making it very clear who he is, and then he kisses her, and she kisses him back. Very. Um, Passionate. you know, passionately, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, and, that, and, and that, it's not forceful. He doesn't take her forcefully. He doesn't grab her arm. He, you know, it takes her face, and then boom, they go into the making out. And, it's, and, it's, and the, yeah. the kiss. It's not mm. just that they kiss. Yes, it's that you see with MacGyver's when she mm. puts her hands up, uh, Khan's back. You yes. see, she's giving yes. into him. She's surrendered herself to him. Yep. She's. He, he has her and, and she has him. So the, we have the kiss and then it fades out. And my question for you is how far did it go before they left to go to dinner? <sighs> Good question. Oh, I never thought about that. 
Well, I'll say I have this. a very strong opinion about it. Okay, <laughs> my 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 feeling is now that you asked, and it's something I never thought about. Like, did it just stop at the kiss, or did you know, did did she uh, did he get to her quarters a little bit early? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because even though we've established from from the first time that she sees him if, while yeah. he's still in suspended animation, that there's an attraction there, and yeah. then. The attraction is stronger in sickbay and the attraction is a whole lot stronger now that he is in her quarters. Is that enough to warrant that she would give everything up for him? Do I think that they had sex? The answer is yes. Wow. I say no. Why? Because he is in power in this situation. So he does not have to take her yet and, and have her yet. And the kiss is not one of aggression again. So aggression is the overwhelming desire to take in half. He's kissing her, but it's very passionate, but it's not right. aggressive. Right. And so I think that he kisses her to essentially plant the flag with her. <laughs> and then down the road, he will consummate this relationship. Because remember, even with, even with Kirk, he's essentially making out with Kirk um, mentally when he's like, Tell me about how many people are left. Tell me, you will arrive them. You blah, blah. okay? My name is Khan. That's him kissing Kirk and not giving too much. So I think Khan is very reserved when he's in a position of power about what he gives to who when. And so I think him now with this kiss and her giving herself to him in this passionate way is him saying, okay, as you said, Steve, I got her. I don't have to rush this now. Okay, but I wait a minute. Wait a minute. When, when I the, want to the the, the motivations. For her to do everything she does following this mm-hmm. moment, uh, I just think that there's got to be more to it than just a kiss. It's very possible, Scott. You may be a hundred percent right that I, they had I, sex. I, I just I, don't. I know. never, I never thought about it. Like I never mm. thought about it, Stephen. Yeah, neither did I. Just asked right now. Yeah, and you didn't Agreed. even really, really ask. You know, <laughs> uh, you implied. I knew where you were going, and I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying yes. Khan and MacGyver's had sex before they went to dinner. Usually it's the other way around, but. (laughs) So putting aside for the moment, the extremely sexy, sexy image of Shatner making out with Ricardo Montalban, (laughs) I think we can, I'll tell you what I think. I do not think they had sex. What I think happened is that to put it very frankly, Khan took it to a place where she was ready to have sex. Yes. And then he said, we have to go. Yes. Power. How? Because he, I mean, to, to be frank or to put it crassly, always leave them wanting more. Yes. Is that he needs her to do what he says. Mm-hmm. And so he needs to drive her nuts. And, and that is what he does. And that's a great point, Steve. And let's not forget, Khan makes a couple of decisions here in the tail end of the episode that convey a genuine affection for her. So whatever you may think about him as a person... By the end of the episode, I buy into this relationship that he's also in love with. By the end, yes, I agree. And so this is, and maybe him not taking her yet, is also, as you said, human beings conflicting emotions. He may want her, but a piece of him at a primal level understands that to rush this thing, he could ruin this thing. And Uh, so uh, he's keeping it to us. He's keeping a distance. But I I think I I think that that moment, you know, the build up to that kiss and her submission, I think that there was. There was a, something that happened after that. And mm-hmm. that is actually a great question for everybody listening oh, yeah. to our deep dive on <laughs> enterprise incidents. What 
happened after the kiss? Did Khan and MacGyver's go to dinner or did Khan and MacGyver's have sex and we just didn't see it? Head over to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you think happened after the kiss. And now we continue with I our regularly question. scheduled program. <laughs> I want the question to be, did Khan and MacGyver's go to dinner or did Khan and MacGyver's go to dinner? I think that should be, that should be the question. Yeah. Well, and I think what this also brings up is that is that what are Khan's feelings about MacGyver's and how do they evolve? Right. Like, in my opinion, by the end, he does have genuine affection oh, totally. for her. That's really clear. Yeah. Uh, my personal opinion is that at the beginning, while he might be attractive to her, he, this is a this is a tool to get power right at the beginning. Conflicting emotions, as you said. Yeah, multiple. Um, yeah, we're at dinner. This might be my favorite scene in the <laughs> in the whole episode. It is such a great scene. Absolutely great scene, and it is a conversation about Khan's journey, and Khan's answer about why he's doing it is adventure, Captain Adventure. There was little else left on Earth, and Spock says there was the war to end tyranny. Many consider that a noble effort. So Spock is going in for the kill. Mm. Spock is not uh, being subtle at all. He is not mm-hmm. tiptoeing around anything. He's going right in. and He's seeking it, facts for his theory, as you right. said earlier. Scott. But he yeah. is – this is a, a, an incredible scene, very well written, very well acted. Mm. The building tension is just very gripping – this is just what makes Star Trek one of the best written series, I think, ever. <laughs> well, and speaking of writing, just these two paired lines is a good example of how well-written this scene is. Tyranny, sir, or an attempt to unify humanity? Unify, sir, like a team of animals under one whip. The repetition of the word, sir, is what makes it, a, makes it two good lines that work well together. And what I love, too, at this moment... And this is, of course, this is the essence of Khan and how mm-hmm. you feel about him is like Khan believes that he would be the great leader that would unify the planet and make everything better. Yeah, that's that's what he thinks. And Spock is saying t- a team of animals under one whip and how we feel about Khan. One of the things that determines it is like, well, how good a leader would Khan be? How, what yeah. would life under him be like? The other thing that's so interesting is at the moment that Spock says that, Khan looks to Kirk. Yep. I think that is a great, great bit of acting and direction and editing in that moment. Well, and this is something that <clears throat> occurred to me as I was watching the episode. Based off this dinner – by the way, Star Trek has great dinner scenes always, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the Star Trek Six Romulan Ale dinner scene is fantastic. Oh, but yeah. The, the Undiscovered Country. So mm-hmm. Yeah. The Undiscovered yeah. Um, But this is – Spock is – Quite like subtly, always the one who kind of outthinks Khan. And remember the Matara Nebula, he's like, unless the two dimensional, you know, he's the one that's analyzing Khan, right? Kirk is Kirk is going, yes, Kirk's intelligent, Kirk certainly analyzed things or whatever, but Kirk likes to fly from his gut. And uh, Spock is invaluable in this episode and in Star Trek 2 in how to handle Khan and kind of outmaneuver Khan. And he's the one that gets Khan to break. And that's Khan pulls himself back, and that's why he goes to Kirk. He goes, ah, very <laughs> smart to let your second in command do this and blah, blah, blah. So it's well, pretty cool. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that line from the end, which um, mm-hmm. because that is one of my questions is, did Kirk and Spock plan this out? 
Yes. And I think they did. Absolutely. I think this was oh. all planned out. Oh, totally. Um, is, is Kirk literally said, here's, I want you to take him to task on these points mm-hmm. and see if we can get him to say some more. Uh, and I, I, Montalban's performance, I'm just going to keep saying, is so great. The mm-hmm. way he goes into explaining what was happening, he says, I know something of those years. Remember, it was a time of great dreams, of great aspiration. To which Spock replies, under dozens, dozens of, of petty, petty dictatorships. dictatorships. <laughs> sounds and familiar. Now, it sounds familiar, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> and now Khan is starting to come out, you know, mm. that arrogance and the truth is and starting the, to come out. And he the says, ego. The yes. ego. One man would have ruled eventually. As Rome under Caesar, think of its accomplishments. What's so interesting about that is that falls so much into which we're only starting to kind of reassess, but the basic, the great man view of history mm-hmm. and the great civilization view of history is that, is that Caesar and Rome were essentially a good. Mm-hmm. And we have, a, you know, or Alexander is like, well, these are people that conquered a whole bunch of other people, you know, like, and killed a lot of people. And were there great things about Rome? Absolutely. Great art, great architecture, laws, uh, roads, aqueducts, all that stuff. Great. Mm-hmm. Were there bad things about Rome? Absolutely. <laughs> and so and, and so Khan sees Rome only from the great man perspective and not from what are the negative consequences of the Napoleon, of Genghis Khan, of Caesar. And Kirk, throughout this whole thing, is studying him. He's staring him down. He's not just studying him. He's staring him down. By the way, you brought up a great question. Like, was this part of the plan all along for Kirk Mm -hmm. and Spock to take advantage of the situation and expose Khan? I don't think that was the plan. I think it happened Mm. organically. Okay. Could be, yeah. Because when when, – when McCoy first shows up and says, very impressive, and Kirk says, oh, yeah, it was MacGyver's idea, I think Kirk would have told McCoy the plan because maybe he would have had McCoy kind of going for the kill as well. I think that all this just happened organically. I don't think that that Kirk and Spock had a, uh, a you know, that it was their motive from the beginning to, to kind of dig a con. And we have this line that you mentioned, John, where mm. – Khan sort of sits back and realizes what's going on, and he says, You are an excellent tactician, Captain. You let your second-in-command attack while you sit and watch for weakness. To which Kirk's reply is, You have a tendency to express ideas in military terms, Mr. Khan. This is a social occasion. (laughs) It has been said that uh, social occasions are only warfare concealed. Many prefer it more honest more open and he's, he's basically telling kirk you know come on what do you got and kirk goes all right fine you fled why were you afraid <laughs> khan just shakes his head takes his drink i've never been afraid but you left at the very time mankind needed courage and khan just breaks it smashes <laughs> his fist down we offered the world order and kirk looks at him we I gotcha. I gotcha. It is such a few good men moment (laughs) is that they totally baited Khan into admitting what they wanted him to admit. And Khan's saying, you can't handle the truth. And Kirk is going, I want the truth. (laughs) Yep. And the thing that my note here was, I just wrote, you can tell that Shatner loves acting with Montalbano. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Just see the joy 
of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is why, of course, this is who the greatest bad guy in one episode, you could just see that this is it. This is the mm-hmm. person who is Kirk's nemesis. And this is why um, we're going to make a movie out of this. <laughs> and, and I love the moment after where Khan realizes that they baited him mm-hmm. and he took the bait and he smiles and he says, excellent, excellent. Like, well done, Captain Kirk. Yeah, not bad for yeah. a uh, an inferior person. <laughs> and then Khan uses the same damn excuse. But if you will excuse me, gentlemen, ladies, I grow fatigued again. Which he's not. He's not fatigued. <laughs> no. no, he's not fatigued. He 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 needs to uh, uh, do some damage control, and he needs to compose himself, and he needs privacy to do that. And so he's back in his quarters, and in comes Marla. I wanted to apologize. They had no right to treat you that way. Which is fair. They did launch a two prong attack on yep. him. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They they went after him. Was it fair? Was it fair with what Kirk and Spock did? No, I mean, but mm-hmm. but there's a lot of tension there. Mm-hmm. There's so much about that period of time, uh, yeah. and Kirk and Spock are thinking like, you know, this guy who fled the Earth is now here in the 23rd century. What are we dealing with here? I mean, it's not just their curiosity; that it's their duty. They got to know. I should say that this scene with Marla and Khan in Khan's quarters is the heart of mm. what we could argue about in terms of the way all of this is portrayed. No mystery to me. I know exactly who you are. And you see his reaction of, I would say, fear. Right. Uh-oh. Is that Khan goes, wait, you know I'm Khan Noonien Singh? I think that's what his face. Really? Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't. I see that. She has now unveiled the painting inside him by oh, saying that. I love the way you said that. <laughs> I'm just saying she she stops him cold because she says that. And she says, and maybe he's been waiting for a woman to finally see him for who he is or say that to him mm. and mean it. And someone he's attracted to. And when she says it, I think it stops him cold because he didn't anticipate this exchange or feeling that way about her. Um, and she says, like Richard the Lionheart, Leif Erikson, she's comparing him to great men. Yeah. And, it, and, and this is interesting, Steve, because I think this harkens back to your earlier question. So the next moment is him reverting back to the physical uh, instincts that he always has, whether violence or uh, romantic or otherwise, and grabs her or, or takes her physically and wants to make out. And she says, please don't pushes him off and he flings her against the door in essence or towards the door. This is a moment of vulnerability and his reaction to having his vulnerability exposed, but not consummated is one of anger and defensiveness. John, I'm going to say something very strange to you, which is I think that I am correct about what Khan's reaction is in the reaction shot to, I know who you are. Okay. But I like your idea better. (laughs) Well, Because your idea really plays to what we're talking about, which Mm -hmm. is the moments in which Khan decides he's genuinely attracted to her. And it also plays to this to this next moment of go or stay. Um, Yeah. And if I could be even more revealing, I have had moments like this with women in the past. I have been the the old man you see now, ladies and gentlemen, isn't the passionate Roka of his 20s and 30s. I mean, there are I have felt my power in moments when I was younger. And I 
I identify with a lot of what Khan is doing in certain moments in this uh, episode. Certainly not taking over the ship or the more brutal moments, but certainly that feeling of meeting someone that you feel a passion for. And so having them reject you, especially when you're not, when I haven't done the therapy or I haven't done all the stuff that I did later in life, there is that moment where you say like, go or stay, but you're messing with my feelings Mm -hmm. because you don't have the emotional vocabulary or maturity to understand that a more calm approach or seasoned approach is the right approach in, in a moment like that. Just because she doesn't want to kiss you then doesn't mean she's not going to want to kiss you later. You just have to be patient. And I think Khan is indulging in his defensiveness, which is his natural instinct always, which is the downfall yet again of Khan. But sorry, I, Scott, I, you were saying? I, you know, look, I, I appreciate that personal connection there. Mm. But from, a, from an episodic standpoint here, you know, we've commented so many times how great this episode is, how, how superbly acted it is, how well yeah. written it is. But one of the things that just makes it as brilliant as it is, is that we keep learning new things throughout the course of this episode about Khan. Every time we think we have (laughs) Khan figured out, he does something to shock us, to display another level of his character. Please don't. Go or stay, but do it because it is what you wish to do. That line has been in my head forever mm. because the intensity with which he delivers it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is so off the charts. It's like it pinged the whole scale into the red. Yeah. It's so powerful. I'm not even 100% sure, you know, exactly what he is saying, but it is amazing. Mm-hmm. And if I've seen Spacey 300 times, I'm probably being very conservative in my estimates. But no matter how many times I watch Space Seed and you get to that moment, he's so passionate with his response. Mm-hmm. Make up your mind. Go or stay, but do it because it's what you wish to do. And right. then she's like shocked. Marla McGarvis is shocked. And he looks back at her and says, well, like, right. like he doesn't even like give her a moment to figure it out. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to stay? You're going to go? And she goes, I'll stay a little longer. But even that's not good enough for Khan. How many minutes do you graciously offer? <laughs> and then she asks, she asks him, I'd right. like to stay, please. It's not just that she asks him. He demands that she ask him. You must now ask to stay. This is where I think you're right, Steve, about the male fantasy of power over a woman. This is where I think the writers maybe veered off course a little bit with this moment. But then again, he is a villain. Yeah. But this also signifies that maybe they didn't have sex because she rejected him because of the way mm. he reacts when That's she says, point. please don't. He throws her out. Go or stay. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe he's frustrated. So so here's the thing, I think. So uh, for those of you who listen to the cinephiles, these concepts have co- – the conversations have come up many, many times mm. of how do we view this event – at the time it was made, and then how do we look at yes. today's eyes, and how has that shifted? For me, it's this scene is supposed to bother us. Yes, it's supposed to be an uncomfortable scene, right. and I don't have a problem. I I do agree that I think this is playing out a certain kind of male power fantasy that the writers are creating, but I don't think that they're saying anyone is saying that this is okay right. in the way that this scene is done. This right. is a bad guy, and I also think 
Is it impossible to say that sometimes women are attracted to the wrong men or that men want to use power to dominate women and control them or that sometimes that power becomes physical or that women are in situations with things like that with men that they feel that they love, that mm. they don't know how to extricate themselves? Yeah. I think these are real things. Yeah. And and so the fact that it's uncomfortable is correct. Right. You know? Right. And by the way, this goes this obviously this goes both ways. It's not just always men. There are situations sure, where, of course, where women have the power over and and emasculate and subjugate their men. And we've, I'm sure, all of us have had friends who are in relationships where a woman emasculates or subjugates. It hasn't, but it happens. But the larger percentage, obviously, is yeah. men doing it to women because it's a patriarchal society. So it goes both ways. The idea of being the idea of human beings wanting to be subjugated. There wouldn't be cults or religions or leaders or kings or what have you throughout history if there wasn't some sort of primal innate sense amongst a majority of people to be ruled, to be subjugated, to be in some way controlled or need the control in order to function in their world. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't want to sound like Khan, but I'm just throwing it out there. Well, and also some people are into weird stuff. Yes. You know what I mean? Like There's nothing um, wrong with that. Yeah. And, and well, there's there are things wrong with this scene. If it's consensual, I'm saying there's nothing wrong. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing that's uncomfortable about this scene because after she asks to stay, he takes her hand, yeah, and he squeezes it and clearly hurts her. Oh yeah, and drives her down to her knees, mm. oh, and yeah. he says, "Open your heart. Will you open your heart?" And she says, while in pain. Because I think part of it, I think that's why that opening scene where she doesn't want to leave her painting to go on the mission is so key to her character. This is mm -hmm. an unhappy person who suddenly is presented with the idealized fantasy of her dreams, who is demanding mm -hmm. that she just go for it in right. some way. And she goes with it, right. you know. And then we hear Kant say, I intend to take this ship. Now she is being put in a very, very bad position. I mean, it should not be a very bad position because her loyalty should be to the uniform and to Starfleet and to the Enterprise and to her captain. Oh, please don't ask me. To I need your help. You won't harm anyone. Now you question me. No. Will you assist me? Oh, please, God, don't ask me. Leave me then. Instead of composing herself, coming to her senses and being mm. like, holy moly, what the heck was I thinking with this guy? You know, brushing herself up, getting up and walking out the door and reporting this to her captain. Yeah. She is still on the floor and in tears responds to him. I promise I'll do anything you ask. And he looks back at her with his smile and he is thinking all is going according to plan. Absolutely. The, I, I want to go back to this moment of uh, when Khan says, will you assist me? And she says, please don't ask me. We have seen the exact reversal of that situation in what little what are little girls made of when the android Kirk asks Chapel if it comes to a choice between Corby and the ship. And what does Chapel say? He says, don't, don't put me in that position. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. You're right. That's an excellent point. But there's a difference in that uh, Corby was Chapel's fiance. She 
has a history with him. Yep. She's mm. she's known him for for so long, and this is someone who is who is acting out of character, mm. versus Khan, who is someone new to the table, not even of this time, and someone that they already know has a very, uh, shall we say, checkered past. It's Act Three. We're in the briefing room, and now the cat is out of the bag. Name: Khan Nunian Singh. From 1992 through 1996, absolute ruler of more than a quarter of your world. They've got their facts. They know who this guy is. They know what the time was. They know what was going on. They know his place and and his people, where they all fit in. But what's interesting is how we see Scotty and Kirk like talk with admiration about Khan. I must confess, gentlemen, I've always held a sneaking admiration for this one. He was the best of the tyrants and the most dangerous. And Spock can't believe his ears, you know, no pun intended. This romanticism about a ruthless dictator is... But Spock, we humans have a streak of barbarism in us. Appalling, but there, nevertheless. I think, by the way, I think it's a really good scene. And I also think that Spock's out of character here. Because there are other episodes where Spock does exactly what they're doing and describing positive qualities of a, of a bad guy. I can't think of what they are, but they definitely have happened. Uh, but I think this is how we, it's like, I could tell you all sorts of positive things about Genghis Khan, literally the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen. And there are positive things about him. There are also terrible things about him. But the result of this scene in the briefing room is that Kirk puts a 24 hour guard on Khan's quarters effective immediately. Uh, you were talking about costume changes. Now Khan is a red guy. Uh-huh, in a red man, shirt. He, yeah. He fills out that shirt. <laughs> that nobody ever has before and he's doing some strange kind of meditation when kirk enters and sits across from him and khan says my door locked from outside a guard posted unusual treatment for khan nuni and singh and khan just knows up you figured me out and there's a crucial line here in fact i am surprised how little improvement there has been in human evolution or there has been technical advancement, but uh, how little man himself has changed. That line is so true at so many levels. It is not just for this episode, but it is for where we are in this 21st century at Mm. this moment. All the technology that we have, that we've got the internet and we've got, uh, you know, sending people into space and, and yet humanity is still the same. There's still like this massive division. The political strife that Khan refers to in the in the 90s is something that we are seeing with our own eyes. How little man has changed. All these technological advancements between when this episode aired in 1967 to August of 2021, and how little man has changed. It's such a poignant line. Well, evolutionarily, we're the same. Yeah. The, that that change is way too slow. And so and this is one of the things is like humans look back at the barbaric past and go, "Oh, well, obviously I, we would never do that." And it's like, "No, you would have. If you had been raised at that time, the odds are you would have behaved that way." Mm-hmm. And and the thing that I always think about um is uh, I love the fact that in Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> this is another geeky reference, they split intelligence and wisdom in your characteristics mm. because they're not the same thing. And that you can learn from a book or the internet all sorts of information. 
that you didn't have to earn. You know what I mean? It's just out there and you can know it and you could know how to use the computer or drive a car and even how a spaceship works, even though you invented none of those things. But wisdom, mostly you have to earn on your own. You know, you have to develop that yourself through life experience. Yes, you can learn some things from reading a book, watching an episode of Star Trek. Absolutely. But it's not the same as knowledge. Knowledge you can knowledge is easier to get and more readily available than wisdom. And I love too the because the last thing he says after talking about how little man has changed, he says to Kirk, "Yes, it appears we will do well in your century, Captain." And Kirk gets up. Do you have any other questions? Thank you. They've all been answered. Kirk walks out. He locks the door. He walks away. Clearly, Kirk has a lot on his mind, and the guard is standing at attention outside Khan's door. And again, we see Khan summon his inner strength, just like he did when he came to in sickbay. Mm -hmm. And now we are going to see the product of that strength when he rips the door open. And before the security guard can come to attention and take out his phaser, Khan smacks him so hard he flips over. Who knows if he even was still alive? Mm. Because It's a great stunt, by the way. Yeah, yeah it is definitely is a great, a great stunt. And then we're in the transporter room and there is MacGyver's with a phaser and gets the guy to move away. And then Khan enters and basically, I think, does his own version of a Vulcan neck pinch to take the guy out, mm. you know, and we're down on the Botany Bay waking up his crew. Trip is over. The battle begins again. Only this time is not a whirlwind. It's the universe. Wow. What a line. What a great line. Great dialogue. Great writing. We're back up on the bridge and we hear Khan has escaped. I mean, boom, like that's it. Like, whoa. And from that moment, every decision that Kirk makes, Khan was one step ahead of him. He knew mm -hmm. what Kirk was going to do because of that superior intellect. And then he goes to the turbo elevator, which a little technical flaw in the enterprise that that elevator is the only way off the bridge. <laughs> but then uh, he tries to uh, flood flood uh, you know, the decks with neural gas. Can't. He's cut off the systems. Khan had it all worked out, and he did it in really record time. Not yeah. bad for someone who hasn't been uh, – who's, who's just waking up in the 23rd century. And so he calls down to engineering, to Scotty, the miracle worker, who tries to answer and immediately gets knocked out. He's not able to answer you at the moment, Captain. Your ship is mine. I have shut off the live support system to your bridge. Your air should be getting quite thin by now. Again, I love the way they wrote this. You surrender the bridge. Negative. Academic, Captain. I love the line word academic, and I love how Montalban delivers it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have a big music sting, and that is the end of Act 3. My note here is literally this is what I wrote episode of TV. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. it absolutely is, which is why 300 times, that is a conservative estimate on how many times I've seen this episode. <laughs> it's act four. We're right back on the bridge. Kirk is giving his log and we see that almost everyone is already unconscious. Uhura is out. Kirk is recommending people for commendations, mm. including Uhura, other technicians on the bridge. And of course, Mr. Spock. And the last thing Kirk says before losing consciousness, before in his mind, probably dying, he mm -hmm. says, I take full responsibility. He says it twice. I, and now we're with Khan. 
Nothing ever changes except man. Which is weird because that's kind of what he said wasn't changing right. in the previous scene with Kirk. Yeah. And we see that, hey, Uhura is alive, McCoy is there, Scotty is there, Mr. Spock is there. Your technical accomplishments improve a mechanical device and you may double productivity. But improve man and you gain a thousandfold. I am such a man. So I want to say briefly something about these concepts of eugenics and and why I think, A, the ideas are so flawed, and B, why Khan is so flawed, is that when we talk about improving man, what Khan is talking about is things like physical stuff like strength and speed and, and constitution and endurance and all that stuff, coordination, and mental things, pure intelligence. But there's a whole bunch of other traits that aren't talked about compassion, joy, love, art, the love of nature, you know, like the, the caring about family. There's so many things that humans need and that some people just excel at that aren't strength and intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of people like, like John, you and I did Rocky years ago mm -hmm. for the cinephiles. Mm -hmm. Rocky is not a smart guy, no. but he's a wise guy and like a very wise person in his own way. And strangely enough, despite his violent life mm -hmm. a really compassionate person yes you know and that's what Khan doesn't get you know but i also think that's why these stories rarely show you advanced people who are capable of compassion and empathy and all that kind of stuff because this idea of advancing human beings through genetics is always portrayed as a negative and right. I, I I look forward to the day we see a sci-fi situation where we do advance people with that so the steve steve if you and now let's take your logical your point to the next logical step, which is, OK, what if we could create advanced men who were capable of compassion and empathy and at, at higher levels and create the Gene Roddenberry fantasy future that he wants to have uh, in his original series? Um, what do we do with the men who don't want to take it like they don't want to take vaccines? What do we take with the human beings that don't want to take this stuff and become advanced and whatever what what do the advanced empathetic people do with those people? I wonder. Well, the the first thing, and obviously this is literally could be an hours and hours conversation. Sounds like a short to me. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, for those of you who are fans of Enterprise Incidents and don't listen to the cinephiles, as John and I do cinephile shorts regularly for Patreon. One of the things I firmly believe is that one of the mistakes we make is thinking that people are supposed to be the same. Mm -hmm. is that part of the strength of a civilization is that people are really, really different. And that's part of what makes America such an incredible country for as much as it's very flawed because you have people with so many different backgrounds and so many different ideas. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I would say is I don't want everybody to get the same genetic code. The second thing I would say is a lot of times our greatest strengths are connected to our greatest weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And so messing around with that stuff gets real tough. Yeah. You know, because uh, I'm sure for the three of us, a lot of our negative experiences or choices we made that maybe weren't the best choice mm. led to the wisdom that I was talking about a few minutes oh, yeah. ago. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And so like going like, well, I'm going to take out that negative thing and just make you really super empathetic and compassionate as much as I want those traits. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm like, oh, hold on, hold on. What, <laughs> what are we, what, are, how does this going to balance out? Right. That's what I would say. Fair. Join me. I'll treat you well. I need your training to operate a vessel this complex. And Scotty, sitting there, arms folded, says, Where is Captain Kirk? Like, that's the nobility, that that here they are being taken hostage, and Captain Kirk 
as we find out, is uh, close to death, and they refuse to surrender. Even when when Khan's people inflict physical harm, like when Joaquin, played by Mark Tobin in this episode, and he's played by Judson Scott mm-hmm. in uh, the movie The Wrath of Khan, when he slaps Uhura and the look that she gives him, that they are not going to give in, even with Captain Kirk in dire straits. I think the way the crew is together in this moment and Uhura's courage in this moment is amazing. And it also shows why Khan is a, is full of it and a terrible dictator because he immediately, this is the only way he knows to rule mm-hmm. is with power. That's all he's got. Kirk has so many traits that Khan does not have that make him a different kind of leader. As Scott, as you said many times, make him the person that you would follow into an active volcano. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, and, and But Khan has learned at least this one thing. I should have realized that uh, suffocating together on the bridge would create heroic camaraderie among you. But it is quite a different thing to sit by and watch it happening to someone else. Engage the viewing screen. And there is Kirk in the sick bay's decompression chamber and the pressure is going down and he looks in really, really bad shape. And Khan says, your captain will die. Uh, That uh, decompression chamber was built on stage nine where the Enterprise set is, not on stage 10. So even though uh, it was a it was a new set. It was on the uh, stage nine set, which is what kept this as a bottle show. They didn't have to use stage 10 like they did for the Botany Basin. Just a little FYI there. (laughs) If you join me, Mr. Spock, I will save his life. And the look from Nimoy is just so strong and totally disapproving. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And he and Khan is starting to lose his temper. My vessel was useless. I need you and yours to select a colony planet, one with a population willing to be led by us, to be conquered by you. <laughs> because that's what it's all about for Khan. Um, and then he has fully lost it. Each of you in turn will go in there, die while the others watch. And nothing. He gets nothing from them. But the reaction you get is not from the senior officers. The reaction you get is from MacGyver's. The reality is hitting her. She has a crisis of conscience. She sees what Khan is doing to her captain. She sees Uhura is is smacked. And she realizes the severity of the situation. She has a crisis of conscience. She is now going to try to do some damage control. If not, certainly it's past the point of no return for her. Mm -hmm. But if if she had not done what she is about to do, then things would have – turned out very bleak for the crew of the Enterprise. Khan, there's no reason I must watch this, is there? I think the line that Khan says when she asked to leave is really interesting. He says, But I hoped you would be stronger. Right. (laughs) It's an interesting line. And then we lose the video, I don't quite know why, of Kirk. Maybe MacGyver's does it right outside in the hallway, but I don't quite know why. And (laughs) Joaquin goes to hit Uhura again, and Khan stops her and says... It does not matter. The captain is dead. And there is a huge reaction from Uhura. And, you know, Scott, we talked about that. I think the character that they really developed the most early on is Sulu. 
Mm-hmm. I think Sulu, they did it, even though he's not in this episode, I think they did a great, great job with him. I think the character they did the worst service to is Uhura. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think agree. The, and, and this one, like my note was stop making her play the girl. Like they want someone to have the big emotional reaction to the captain is dead. And so they give it to Uhura. There's so many more things they could have done with her. And it, it just, I think is really sad. Too bad. Well, and this is if, and Scott, you can correct me on this. I, if what I understand, what I've read numerous times is why she wanted to leave the show because she felt it was not giving her like anything to do, treating her in this way. But Martin Luther King Jr. Yep. From what I understand, convinced her to stay on the show because he said, you represent having a black woman on a show like this for everyone to see you, you, you have a bigger role to play here. That's than correct. Your own personal desire to have your character have multiple levels and what have you. And unfortunately, and ironically, in a show about advancing uh, humanity, they were not good at advancing the humanity of women of color on that show at a time when women of color were coming into prominence as voices in the civil rights movement. Well, she definitely, you're right, uh, John. She mm-hmm. did want to leave the show because she felt like she wasn't given enough to do other than say, hailing frequencies open. Yeah. And when she when she was at a function and she met Martin Luther King uh, and she said that she was thinking about leaving because she felt like her character was uh, underwritten, underutilized, not appreciated. And he just sort of said, ah, you you have to stay. Mm-hmm. You're the presence of a black woman on the bridge of a vessel like this in the future says so, so, so very much for a TV show airing in the late 1960s when mm-hmm. that era's civil rights movement was at its peak. Yeah. So she stayed. <laughs> so Khan now sends Spock off because he's the next one to be tortured to death. And we're at the decompression chamber and Mar- MacGyver's enters and says – basically distracts the guy guarding it and hits him with an injection. She goes down, she turns up the pressure and which comes up and then opens the door. I love the design on this thing with the big circle and the small (laughs) circle as it opens. I think it's a really little cool piece of design and Kirk gets out and she says, Captain, I saved your life. Please don't kill him. He does not respond at all. He is not having any of it. And then he hears Spock, come in the uh, sick bay with the other member of Khan's team and hides behind the wall. I love that when Spock walks through the door, in the moment before Kirk attacks, Spock sees that Kirk is there yeah. and gives no reaction in order to help make it work. I think that's just a tiny little detail that's yep. great. Good point. Mm-hmm. They struggle for a little bit. Uh, Spock gives him the uh, FSNP, famous Spock <laughs> neck pinch. Surprised to see you, Captain, though pleased. I'm a little pleased myself. Khan is holding our staff in the briefing room. His men have control of the ship. Our only chance is the intruder control circuit. Gas all decks, but this one. Uh, we're in the briefing room, and Khan is calling around all his people and can't find anybody. No. And then he, we see the gas, and he runs out. Uh, by the way, I think it's funny. Like when the gas starts uh, filling up the briefing room, you know, Scotty's like running out. He's almost out the door, and he like goes back to punch uh, Khan's person <laughs> in <Yeah>. the face. <laughs> like he was like he was like home free. He was out the door, and he like goes, "Wait a minute!" He runs back, punches yeah. the guy in the face, <laughs> then goes out of the briefing room. Scotty Spock in the corridor. <laughs> Got to get that shot in the Scotty. Yeah, right. I appreciate it. <laughs> and then we hear Spock's voice saying. Anesthesia gas in all sections except engineering. Someone just closed that line. 
And then we're in engineering, and this just is so sucks because Khan is sitting there and hears Spock say, Captain, acknowledge, unable to flood engineering. And you're going, oh, no. Now Khan knows. And if that wasn't enough, we then hear Scotty's voice say, Captain's headed for the engineering section. So Khan is obviously very prepared. He hides just on the side of the door. In comes Kirk with his phaser. Khan grabs him, takes the phaser, and I love he holds it in front of him and crushes it, which seems dangerous to me but is very intimidating. Very intimidating. Just again, another moment to establish the superior strength that Khan possesses. So Khan, because he read those technical manuals, he is built an overload in the Enterprise. And in moments, the Enterprise will explode like an exploding sun. Here's something I don't understand. Why? Why does Khan, does Khan want to die at this point? No, Khan doesn't want to die. But he sees, well, if I go down, I'm taking them with me. Which is, yeah, which is what Genesis Machine does. Actually, too, that's right? a really good point. That's con. The yeah. end result, you know, is that I'll take everybody out if you don't let me win. Yeah, yeah he's basically saying at this moment, no, Kirk, mm-hmm. you don't get away. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Kirk goes for the panel and. Khan throws stuntman Kirk. The stuntman, are really oh kind of dude. The HD version of this is t- is h- tough because you can tell the stuntman from a mile away. Oh, yeah. Now, now here here's the interesting here is that so William Shatner's stuntman is Gary Combs. Ricardo Montalban's mm. stunt double is Chuck Couch. And you're right, John. The HD version of this episode it's so blatantly, totally, <laughs> completely obvious really uh, during the wider shots that they are stuntmen. And it is the exact same effect that was uh, unfortunately used in Court Martial, where when uh, Kirk and Finney are fighting in, en- in, in engineering, just like this, they are obviously stuntmen. Both of these episodes were directed by Mark Daniels. Hmm. So nothing against Mark Daniels, but when it comes <laughs> to kind of uh, doing the close-up shots with the, with the pullback shots, uh, he just wasn't good at hiding the fact that they, that they were stuntmen. And yeah. to be fair to Mark Daniels, he didn't know they were going to be on DVD and Blu-ray. And, HD. You know, he was just and watched it over and over yeah, again. Exactly. What right, did he right. know? Um, like, yeah. There is one cool mo- move where Kirk sort of climbs up on the 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 wall and gets his legs around Khan's neck, yeah. and, and they roll, and f- that's kind of cool. Yeah. I have five times your strength. You're a match for me. And he's advancing on Kirk, who's pulling some weird thing <laughs> out of the out of the uh, engineering panel, and uses it to beat the crap out of Khan. Okay, now let's let's look at this moment. His <laughs> knowledge of the Enterprise from what he read in sickbay, he learned enough where he was able to figure out how to mm. self destruct the Enterprise. Right. But what is it that Spock says in the Wrath of Khan? that Khan suffers from two-dimensional thinking. And there is also something that we see happen in The Wrath of Khan, where this scene where Kirk takes out that uh, contraption and uses it as a weapon to bludgeon Khan. So in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Khan takes over the Reliant, launches a surprise attack on the Enterprise, almost destroys it. Mm -hmm. And... While Khan negotiates with Kirk to beam over along with the Genesis device, what does Kirk do? He uses something about the Enterprise mm-hmm. that Khan does not know to defeat Khan. Right. And that is what Kirk did in <laughs> this scene right. in engineering. 
There was yeah. something about the Enterprise that Khan did not know. And Kirk was smart enough to figure out what that was in a moment of high drama and ultimately was able to defeat Khan. And yeah. all that's missing is for someone to say, Kirk, you did it. And for Kirk to say, I, I did, did nothing, nothing. <laughs> except get caught with my britches down. So I, I think this is, I had not connected it to all the Wrath of Khan stuff, but now that mm. you say it, I think we could take this idea that his thinking is two-dimensional is that that's all Khan only knows one way to do things, right? He only knows how to go forward. He only knows how to force people. He only knows direct approaches. And Kirk is the master of indirect approaches. He is the trickster, yeah. you know, he's always going to make a move that is unexpected, which is why Spock can't beat him at chess, mm -hmm. you know? So Kirk takes him out and then, and saves the ship. And now we're at court and Kirk is facing a very big choice. And this and is a milestone moment where Kirk is about to make big mistake number two. <laughs> Again, he meant well. Uh, problem is that ultimately the decision that he makes, he did not follow through or follow up with that decision, which is why uh, Khan goes after him. Under the authority vested in me by Starfleet Command, I declare all charges and specifications in this matter have been dropped. I don't understand why Kirk has this authority all on his own <laughs> to decide this thing. It seems like he would want to have a little bit more. I don't think he should drop the charges. I think this is the wrong decision. Mm. Um, but I think it's a great scene and a, and a great decision in terms of TV. Jim, agreed you have the authority. Mr. Spock, I believe our heading takes us near the Sete Alpha star system. Quite correct, Captain. Planet number five there is habitable. Although a bit savage, somewhat inhospitable. But no more than Australia's Botany Bay colony was at the beginning. Those men went on to tame a continent, Mr. Khan. Can you tame a world? I love Khan's response. Have you ever read Milton, Captain? And Kirk just nods. Yes, I understand. So, John, one of our discoveries in the course of the show, which I don't know if we've mentioned, but that mm. Kirk at Starfleet Command was a nerd. Kirk... <laughs> was a stack of books with legs. That's how Gary Mitchell describes him. And he also says that he was so serious, he was absolutely grim at Starfleet Academy. What? And there's another line, Scott, that we haven't focused on, which is before Gary Mitchell describes Kirk as a stack of books with legs, he's reading just where Khan reads in sickbay. And he says, I've been reading all that long hair stuff you like. <laughs> Kirk liked to read long hair stuff mm. like Milton. Right, right. That's a great point. Mm. That's a great point. And that is why all Khan had to say was, have you ever read Milton? Because yes, Kirk did in fact read Milton because he was a nerd. By the way, I've read Milton. And if someone said, have you ever read Milton? I would never have come up with this. Like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really tough book. And uh, so, so yeah. the fact that Kirk figured this out is pretty cool. And then he offers Lieutenant MacGyver's The Choice. Given a choice of court-martial or accompanying them there, it will be difficult. A struggle at first, even to stay alive, to find food. And she says, I'll go with him. And he says, a superior woman, I will take her. And I've gotten something else I wanted. The world to win, an empire to build. So 
I totally understand why this episode ends this way with Marla MacGyver's going with Khan. And I obviously we don't have Wrath of Khan, the greatest Star Trek film ever made, without her making that choice. I don't think it's the right choice. I think the episode. I think in terms of Khan's a bad guy, and she turned against him. And I think she should say, "No, I'm going to face the consequences of my action. I'm not going with you." If I were writing the script, what? Why? (laughs) Why would you do that? That's such a boring ending. This is the right ending. This she goes right with ending. him yeah. because she goes with him because, as I said earlier, there are always women who will go with men of power, men of or and vice versa, men who will go with women of power because there's something there that, as you said earlier, Steve, that turns them on. Everyone's got their thing or their fetish or whatever. So her deciding to go with him is not to avoid consequences for her actions. It's no, I agree. It's it's yeah. Kirk graciously giving her the choice, and he doesn't have to. But he gives her the choice and she goes with him because she does love him. She does care for him. And Khan, for all the bad guy you you say he is, and he is, he's got obviously bad tendencies. He does care about her. He doesn't get mad at her that she turned on him. He doesn't kick her out for betraying him. And he says to her, and he he even gives her the choice and says, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. A straight shooter Khan is from the beginning always. He says this. He likes it straight up. So he tells her this. This is the deal. If you come with me, just know it's not going to be easy. And so she has every opportunity to turn this option down. And I don't th- and I think she doesn't because she's not happy on the enterprise. Right. And exactly. this is an option to explore something new and really indulge her own ideas and concepts of powerful men and explore it for herself. And maybe this is what she's always wanted. Maybe she's an old soul. And so she goes with Khan because she does love him and wants to see what this decision brings her in her life. At this time, you know? well, well, she goes with him. I agree. What's the uh, uh, John? What you're saying? But yeah. after everything, after the stunts that she just pulled during Khan's time on the Enterprise, uh, let's face it, she was not facing a very promising future. No, she was all. out. Yeah, uh, she, she was. was she's out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at best, she would be in the brig, court-martialed, whatever. Right. But but now she has a chance. It's going to be rough. It's going to be rough and tumble. It's, but at least she will she will be with Khan, yeah. this guy that she obviously loves, and she will have freedom. It's going to be difficult, savage, but mm-hmm. she's she sees no alternative. She sees that she's going to be much better off taking her chances with Khan mm-hmm. than living, uh, you know, certainly a restricted life because a she wasn't happy, and b now that she's she's just in a lot of trouble. Yeah. But can, when- can I can I can I tell you guys something surprising? Sure, you guys are right. I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> well, that's not about <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 you guys made excellent points. I think I was trying to service the a the character growth idea, mm-hmm. and I was trying to service the reacting against the negativity of their relationship mm-hmm. idea. But you guys are actually a hundred percent right. It's better this way, and another reason it's better this way is she's actually leaving the 23rd century. Mm-hmm. She's going back to an earlier time, which right. is what she wants. Right. Which is what, right. I all just, it's and actually it's a great bookend to when we first see MacGyver's inner quarters mm-hmm. with all these sculptures and all these paintings of classic male warriors. And now she's going to be in a situation where humanity for her will revert to that, right. that time, basically. Yeah. She's going to be in a more 
physically primitive society where men were men and mm-hmm. especially the man that she loves. And we, you know, we mentioned this moment of have you read Milton, but we haven't actually said what it is and people wouldn't probably understand it unless Scotty walked up and said, it's a shame for a good Scotsman to admit it, but I'm not up on Milton. The statement Lucifer made when he fell into the pit is it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that actually comes from Milton's extremely long poem, Paradise Lost. And Kirk is paraphrasing uh, Satan's speech, which is really, here we may reign secure and in my choice. To reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And one bit of dialogue that never made it to the final teleplay but it was in that James Blish story that was published in that early Star Trek book because he was working from an earlier version of, of the outline or, or of the screenplay. So in an early draft of the script, Kirk comments – check this out, guys. Kirk comments that he hopes the crop won't spring out of the ground and come looking for them. Mm. Oh, wow. (laughs) Is exactly what happens. Well, and it's here that we find the meaning of the title. Would be interesting, Captain, to return to that world in a hundred years and learn what crop had sprung from the seed you planted today. Yes, Mr. Spock, it would indeed. (laughs) And we have reached the end of not only one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek, but one of the most epic conversations in the history of Enterprise incidents. (laughs) No question about it. And again, to have this conversation with the two of you guys, John, you know, to have you back on Enterprise incidents, but also to come full circle from Mm. years ago when I met uh, Steve for the first time and joined you for the first time on the Cinephiles to to do our deep dive on Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But what did some of the players in Space Seed feel about this episode? Well, Ricardo Montalban said, it was a very happy company and everyone was very cordial. All the regulars were wonderful to me, most helpful, and I loved it. I thought it was well-written. It had an interesting concept and I was delighted it was offered to me. DeForest Kelly said, I really enjoyed working with Ricardo the best I was privileged. He's a marvelous actor. And one of my favorite people associated with the original Star Trek, someone I've absolutely shown and and expressed my admiration to many, many times on Enterprise Incidents, is cinematographer Jerry Finnerman. Mm -hmm. Jerry Finnerman said that about Space Seed, that was a wonderful show. It was so good that they made a feature out of it, which was a big time feature. And if you realize it, you take a show like that, where there's hardly any action, but you never get tired of it. Now, if you can hold people with that dialogue for, what, 48 minutes, isn't that wonderful? It just goes to show you how strong the writing was on Star Trek. So I am really having trouble coming up with my my final statement about this episode. I absolutely love it. We've already talked about the writing being fantastic. And the biggest thing to me is just Ricardo Montalban is unbelievably amazing Mm -hmm. in every single second he's on screen he just dominates and his power Mm -hmm. and his intensity and 
Everything about him is fascinating. And it absolutely makes perfect sense why you go, this is where we make a Star Trek movie. I would say this, you know, we always talk about uh, those of us who are Star Trek fans, we always talk about ranking the episodes, ranking the episodes. And this is always one that is in the top five or top 10 for a lot of people. I would argue top five consistently. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's the height of their writing. It's the height of the interactions between the three McCoy, Bones, and uh, – I'm sorry, McCoy, uh, Spock, and Kirk. And then you throw in someone who is every bit their equal in Ricardo yeah. Montalban from the first second of the show without saying a word. He is so proud lying in that bed, in that chamber or whatever. There is such power in just his essence and energy without speaking a word. And to be able to go toe-to-toe with all of them throughout the show was incredible. For a kid like me, as I've said numerous times, seeing a Latino be able to have a role like that and embrace it and be so powerful as he was uh, in that role. I didn't even know that he was Indian until much later in my life. It was, you know, what I focused on was that it was Ricardo Montalban and the accent was there. So to me immediately, and I think it's such a great episode to study. If you're going to study a classic episode of television and understand why television endures still in our society as a place to have, to witness some of our greatest creators asking us questions about ourselves and about our lives. And it's all there in this episode for sure. And we're still talking about it in 2021 and we'll be talking about it in 2121. Yep. I'm sure on some other podcast. I uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I can bet that uh, John you will absolutely be on that podcast. Too. <laughs> <laughs> At least my brain in a jar might yeah, be. That's right, right, sure. right, yeah. Uh meanwhile, I I agree with both of your points uh, on the final thoughts on Space Seed. Uh, it is a it is an episode that just holds up in every way shape or form, the writing, the acting, the concept, the premise the dialogue. It is uh, a, a, an episode that when you when you try and imagine what they were looking to do for the second Star Trek film, you can just imagine p- producer Harv Bennett and director Nicholas Meyer watching Space Seed and going, that's the one. He tasks me and I shall have him. <laughs> and to watch Space Seed and Wrath of Khan back to back is something I definitely recommend. And speaking of watching Space Seed and Wrath of Khan back-to-back, we have a very, very special announcement, which is you've heard throughout this episode that the way Scott and I met was on the cinephiles talking about Wrath of Khan. It is to this day one of our favorite episodes, one people comment on all the time, and we are going to do something very special, which is release this four-year-old episode of the Mm -hmm. cinephiles on Enterprise Incidents. We're going to put it right here in this feed so you will be able to watch Space Seed and Wrath of Khan back-to-back and listen to our discussions of Space Seed and Wrath of Khan back-to-back. Yeah. And make and sure- I do want to say one yep. thing before we – Scott, you've always given – you're always very kind to say, oh, I, I met Steve through – if you hadn't said yes – so it comes back to you. If you hadn't said yes when I asked you to be on the Cinephiles and we are still just getting to know each other, I was still starting out in this business. If you hadn't said yes and trusted my judgment about this show, that it would be a good show and to come on and be our guests, none of this, uh, the Enterprise Incidents and your legend as a Cinephiles guest would not have been cemented. So thank you for saying yes, my man. Johnny, uh, thank you so much for asking me, for trusting me. Both of you for trusting mm. me and bringing me on. Uh, I know it's turning into a love fest here, but uh, <laughs> I just am so grateful for both of you, John. You know, you and I have 
Uh, had a lot of good times, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> a lot, a lot of good times. And this Agreed. is definitely uh, a very, very special, special moment for me. And, uh, you know, for everyone who's now listened to our deep dive on Space Seed and everyone who will listen to our deep dive on the Wrath of Khan from the Cinephiles episode, yeah. head over to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you think of our deep dive on the on, on the Rathacon, also on Space Seed. And in the meantime, Johnny Roca, where can we find you all over this <laughs> virtual world? <laughs> Real quick, at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm on Twitch now, the Outlaw Nation. I'll be doing watch alongs maybe of some of these episodes of some of these uh, Star Trek movies because I am an Amazon Prime affiliate, so I can do watch alongs of them on Twitch. Uh, also come on over to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash John Roca says, see all the stuff I'm doing there. And finally, my other two podcasts, the Geek Buddies and the Top Ten. Thank you guys again for having me on. I love talking Star Trek with you too. John, this has been such a pleasure. Of course, we're going to have you back again. You just have to figure out what your next favorite episode is. And in the meantime, everyone out there, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We also put our episodes up on YouTube where we love reading your comments and interacting with you there. You can follow the show at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. We've already talked about the cinephiles. Scott, how will people find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And please, very, very important for everyone listening, head over to Apple Podcasts and write, give us a review of Enterprise Incidents. Let us know what you thought of this episode on Space Seed, what you're thinking of Enterprise Incidents so far. Please uh, give us a, give us your review on Apple Podcasts because that uh, those reviews really do help us stick out. In the meantime, now that we are getting into this golden period of the original Star Trek, which I think more than Steve really shows Star Trek hitting its stride, the next episode that we're going to cover is a doozy. It is another episode that has a lot to say in 1967, a lot to say in 2021. And it is an episode that represents another home run from its uh, producer and co-screenwriter, Gene Kuhn. The episode is A Taste of Armageddon. So please join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>